Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. Uh, it's November 6, 2020. We're here on Zoom doing our first Zoom oral history interview for the Oregon Wine History Archive. This is Rex Pickett, uh, the author of Sideways and Vertical and other amazing works. And uh, we're so excited to have Rex joining us today. Thank you so much for being, being part of this, Rex. Uh, first question to kind of get started is just uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and sort of your early education, early life. Well, first of all, thank you for having me as your inaugural uh, Oregon wine history. Um, so it's, uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, I, I was born in California in Merced, but I actually grew up in San Diego. My parents moved here when I was five years old and, um, you know, I had a pretty, uh, I don't know, unspectacular youth of just sports and surfing, if you want to know the truth. Um, my father started doing a little bit better in business than uh, I grew up in a very middle-class neighborhood, not really the kind of breeding ground you might think for somebody who would go on to be a filmmaker and a novelist, whatever. In fact, what's interesting that you said this is that I'm writing my autobiography and it's called my life on spec. And I really got into this so much. It's now going to be three volumes, which my, uh, yeah. And my ex-girlfriend, uh, she joked, well, I hope other people are as interested in your life as you are, you know, which <laughs> got a laugh out of me. But, um, you know, it, it, it was an unremarkable, you know, childhood for the most part. But I think somewhere around 16 or 17, you know, I got tired of kind of the surfer culture. Something in me saw the, um, my peers and my neighborhood chums looking like they were going nowhere in their life. And I started reading literature is what, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, growing up, they tried to play music. They wanted to do things. I had no facility at all with that. Uh, I wasn't, I had no artistic facility at all, but you know, I love, I fell in love with literature. I don't know if it was William Burroughs' Naked Lunch or D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lover. Or, I don't, it, it could have been, and suddenly I fell in love. And then um, at age 17, my, right out of high school, I went to Europe with a friend of mine who was actually um, very smart and, and literary. And we spent two months traveling around Europe. And that, that really changed me. I saw the broader world as opposed to this suburb in San Diego where I grew up and uh, where things were kind of limited. Then I got very fortunate because I wasn't, I was pretty good in school. I always tested really high, but I didn't apply myself because I was always getting by my wits. I got into the University of California at San Diego and, um, and that really changed my life. You know, it's, 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 you know, here in San Diego, but it's up on the, the university's up on the hill in La Jolla. And um, it was only two colleges back then. Now it's six. And the Great Geisel Library, which is this extraordinary library, if, if anybody wants to Google it, um, and which is the main setting for my new novel to come out with Blackstone here in 2021, who, by the way, are in Medford, Oregon, of all things. Um, it largely is set at Geisel Library. It's called The Archivist. And I spent so much time in that library. I was exposed to radical avant-garde cinema because a lot of professors, they drew them out from the East Coast. And it was just was really, UCSD was a magnet for this uh, kind of, of these really high level intellectuals who came out here. And um, 
And so it was an oasis in San Diego. So San Diego was largely back in those days, military, Navy. It's much bigger now. It's got, you know, high tech and everything. But back then it was, it was kind of very provincial in some ways for a city of, of a half a million. But so the University of California at San Diego to me was, a, was an oasis of, of being exposed to great movies, being exco- exposed to great minds, being in, and, and I just wanted to go there. Some people are exposed to that. They don't go there. We talk in the wine world about having everyone you talk about who knows about wine usually has a wine epiphany. They drank a wine and suddenly that, ch- that just changed them. UCSD is, it changed me. It, it, it completely changed me. And, um, and I just embraced it much to the, um, you know, despair of my father who wanted me to take over his, you know, Russ Pickett and Associates coin op, you know, leasing business. You know, he was in big into the laundry business and whatever. And I didn't want to do that, you know? And so I went to UCSD and, uh, you know, I guess, not to go into it at length, a couple of formative things happened there. I became a special projects major. And so I was able to pretty much do what I wanted to do. And in fact, my diploma reads special projects, you know, specializing in uh, literary and film, contemporary literary and film criticism and creative writing. And that's pretty much kind of who I am today, if you think about it. And um, I made a couple of films there. They were non-sync sound, they were experimental films, but I had access to film equipment. So now I'm starting that process of learning how to be a storyteller. I also was writing. I started, I actually originated the first literary magazine that UCSD had, and it went on for years, although I I dropped out after three uh, issues. And I met my ex-wife at UCSD, and, and you know, who's now the chair of NYU Tisch School of the Art Graduate Film. She won an Academy Award in 2000 for a short film that I wrote. That's another really long story, but but that was very formative because I went to LA to go to USC film school and I didn't like it at all. And um, I'll spare you that, Jeremiah. And, um, and I dropped out. And so I really, I really needed the support of somebody so that I wouldn't get sucked back into this, uh, I don't know, this position my father groomed for me that would have made me a very wealthy man being the head of this you know, coin-op leasing business. And he was the Whirlpool distributor for all of San Diego County. And I didn't want that. And Barbara, who comes from a, a family of means, uh, you know, affluent, and and she, you know, um, you know, made it possible for us to stay in LA and make two feature films. So that was, we made th- those two feature films. It's not in the digital day; it's in the analog day. Took took a decade out of my life, you know. Um, but you learn when it comes to being a writer, when it comes to any kind of storytelling, because I was really, as a filmmaker, I was more of a, more of a writer filmmaker where some filmmakers are really a director filmmaker and some filmmakers like Alexander Payne who did Sideways, he's more, he doesn't like writing. He's more of a director editor. He loves the editing process. I don't, I'm done with the film by then. You learn by doing, Rich, you know, is what it is. Anything that you do, you can go to film school, whatever, be exposed to people. But the truth of the matter is, is you learn by doing. And I was getting an opportunity with my ex-wife, Barbara Schock, I'll name her, um, to make films. I made two feature films. The first one um, was a thousand mile road trip because I was uh, 
influenced by Ben Bender's Kings of the Road greatly, which is a three-hour road movie, and started in San Francisco and ended in Baja, California. Very difficult film to make. The second one was even more ambitious. It was a 4,000-mile road movie that started in, it was called From Hollywood to Deadwood, and it started in San Diego, went to LA, went to Deadwood, South Dakota, and came back. Now, we flew in between some places, but that took five years out of my life, that film. And I, I document it and talk about it a lot. Um, in, in my autobiography, so I won't go on about it. We were able to sell it to Island Pictures. They butchered the film and it bombed. And so here we are now, early 90s, and I'm, I'm virtually nowhere. Um, marriages, I wouldn't say, you know, crumbling in that sense, but when you're in that pressure cooker making two feature films and Barbara not only produced the film, she also starred in them. You know, and I wrote and directed them and was involved in post-production. It just, it had a really deleterious effect on, on the marriage, even though she's an incredible person. I also felt like maybe she was starting to, as an artist, she was starting to colonize my unconscious. She, she'll hate me for saying that if she listens to this, but I needed to go in a different direction. And we'll, you'll find out soon enough why when we come to sideways. Um, and so when we get to the nineties, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much nowhere. I mean, there, there are other stories. I had a few writing jobs. I was the last writer on Alien 3, which was David Fincher's first feature film. And there are stories there. Um, ultimately, it was uncredited on that. Um, and I had a few writing jobs, but my mother had a massive stroke in the early 90s. My younger brother took over her care. He stole all her money. Uh, and by the way, that goes to vertical because that's very, yeah, he took all her money. It took two years. So I had to take over her care. And she ended up living for nine, 10 years. Um, my father died shortly before her. He had a massive stroke while undergoing a triple bypass. I know this sounding pretty depressing. And I had to basically beg the hospital to, you know, pull his feeding tubes. But so 90s was a brutal decade for me. I mean, the 80s was was pretty heady. I got to make two feature films and I didn't live a luxe life. I never and Barbara and I didn't live that way. The money all went into the movies. But um, but by the 90s, you know, I had my two movie shots and, uh, you know, Barbara and I had parted company. Uh, although we stayed friends. And um, she went to the American Film Institute to reinvent herself as a director. And in her first year, she had to make three films. Very hard to get into the director's program. And I wrote all three of her first films. So she was only one of four directors to get to be able to make a thesis film. And that was an original script I wrote called My Mother Dreams, The Satan's Disciples in New York. And it won the 2000 Academy Award for Best Live Action Short. But we have to kind of come back to the 90s here a little bit, you know, um, after I was able to get my mother into an assisted living facility and sell her condo here and, and realized that whatever modest trust fund I had had been completely gutted by my younger brother, um, you know, I crawled my way back to my rent control house in LA, which I kept. And, um, and I started getting back into the game of golf of all things. And, and that led me north because playing golf in LA, if you're not a member of a private country club, is well, you're going to wait three hours to tee it up. So I ended up at La Prisima in the San Inez Valley. So really sideways begins not with wine. It begins with golf. And I used to, it was a two and a half hour drive, but when I got there, gorgeous course, hard. I mean, I was a two handicap, you know, difficult, nobody on it. I go, my God, this is paradise. I thought the whole place was paradise personally. And, um, at the same time I was, um, you know, I started going up more, like maybe every three weeks. And I would say, well, might as well stay overnight. So I would go to the Windmill Inn, which is in the movie, you know. And as 
backing up a little bit as a writer, at least for me, you know, and I'm sure other writers are like this, not all, but I'm like this. To me, everything is potentially an idea. It's really an idea for me. And and so I'm I'm discovering a place that I didn't know. It's 50 miles north of Santa Barbara, little known you know, wine region. At that at that point, it was just kind of an RV crowd. If you want to know the truth, tasting rooms were nobody was in them. And and there was no tasting room fee. Of course, you can laugh at that now, but um, and the windmill inn is now the sideways inn. And you know, I used to hang out and I had to have a place to eat. So I went to the closest place and it was hitching post, you know. But meanwhile, you know, I started bringing friends up because it was a very beautiful, there was something very freeing to get out of LA. LA, as a writer, you're struggling. It can be very claustrophobic and it can be very um, desolating and um, it, it dispiriting, I guess is the better word. And, and just, I just get in my car on some Tuesday and just go, I'm getting out of here. And I, I had no money, but it was an inexpensive vacation. I'd get to La Prisma, I'd play 18 holes, that would free my head. The windmill inn was only $29.99 a night. And I'd always, I'm a creature of habits. I always go there. I go over to the hitching post and I'd get a burger and a Pinot, you know, for 30 bucks. And I, what's wrong with this? But you start meeting people. And, um, and I started bringing friends up. And one, one uh, week I brought up a friend of mine who was an electrician on my second feature film, Roy Gittins. And he's not exactly Jack, but he's much more like it. I tend to be I, I tend to be the introverted thinking type, if we want to use Jungian typologies. He's the extroverted feeling type. And now I have conflict. And we went up there and for two days, we went to tasting rooms and we you know, got a little inebriated or more than a little inebriated. And we, I made him laugh and cracked him up. And at the end of these, you know, he said, Rex, you should really write a screenplay. And I came home and I wrote a screenplay, but it didn't work. I didn't show it to anybody. And um, backing up though, Prior to that, I had written a novel called La Parisima, and it was a detective novel. And I, I had lost my agent. He had died of AIDS. I mean, a lot of bad things happened in the 90s. It'll be, you know, in, 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 my, uh, in my autobiography. But, um, but he came out from New York at, uh, to be with Endeavor. It's now William Morris Endeavor. And it's a huge agency to be their book to film agent. And that was a very crucial thing that happened. And I wrote this novel, La Prisma, and we couldn't sell it. So thus, if you watch the movie, it's Miles has a novel he can't sell. So I'm, I'm drawing, I'm literally sucking the marrow of my own brain. I'm drawing from my life, you know, and I've got this character up there and I, I'm living, I mean, I'm borrowing money for rent every month. You know, I, I'm 40, I'm nowhere. I mean, truly nowhere. I mean, in the movie, they made Miles a school teacher which gave him you know, some sort of income. I was not that person. I was literally dancing on the precipice. And, and at my age, what, was I, what else was I gonna do? You know, I have a BA in special projects. I mean, that's not gonna get me anywhere. Um, maybe an MA in English, I could have taught or something. You know, I did have a few credits. I'd made a couple of movies. I was nowhere. And I've said that, I've joked to people many times, you know, if I could have afforded a gun, I would have shot myself. And um, so, one other little thing, which is a wine thing. There was a little wine store close to where I lived. Uh, I lived in Santa Monica, but in the rent control part of Santa Monica. And the wine shop was on Montana Avenue. And you cross Montana Avenue, there's movie stars, there's wealthy people. And this little wine shop called Epicurus had a wine tasting every Saturday afternoon from three to five. And I got to know the guy who ran it. And when the owner left, he started taking out his... Um, well, his apparent uh, unhappiness with his low salary. 
on the owner's inventory. <laughs> and so that's, I learned, his name was Julian Davis. He, he likes the story. And, and the wine tastings were fun and they, they even got a little nutty and the owner would leave at four and the wine tastings would go past five and they got nuttier and he would start opening up, you know, unbelievable bottles and then he'd get really looped and go into the locked cases <laughs> and but you know wine the one thing about wine is um and and i'll get back to the thing about it sideways then we can I'll wait for your next question but unlike literature and film when it comes to you know developing an aesthetic sensibility for literature or movies it, there really is a democracy in the world we can all afford to read war and peace we can all, you know, we can all afford to, you know, download, I don't know, Fellini's Eight and a Half and, and have a film sensibility. It really is affordable to all of us, but not wine. You want to know about Burgundy? You better have deep pockets. You, you better be a sommelier. You better be whatever. So wine, there's a, um, a kind of an elitism in it. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to promote anything on here at all, but, you know, coming out with this wine, which I'm so excited about, um, is I wanted to I wanted to be really inexpensive but really tasty because I'm really against that kind of elitism where the you know your pocketbook buys whatever and so the the novel opens I started writing a short story called the bullpen because we called this little cordoned off area in the back of Epicurus and it was cordoned off because of ABC laws you could not venture out and the tastings it was a, a core group of mostly guys and some of them were very wealthy because they were coming from down from north and then there were people like me who were just looking for any kind of social outlet literally because i was so lonely at that time and so um i don't know you know i wasn't like a pariah in the industry but i was i was definitely um not um i i had no social life at all i couldn't get arrested you know as a writer or anything and la prisma now isn't it's not selling and, and in the case of a novel the rejection letters go and they're really letters they go to your agent and then your agent sends them on to you forwards my and puts on little things like keep your chin up rex or you know but they it's a slow morphine drip rich it comes in over a period of months you know so that saturday was my really because i was so broke you know it was my only social outlet so i started writing a short story in first person from the point of view of a character named Miles Raymond. So it's me, basically, who goes to this wine tasting. And I just, you know, I'm always writing. I don't wait for the last thing. And I'm writing it and it's and it's gonna deteriorate or degenerate into a brawl. And that was my idea. Cause, you know, people used to get into arguments there, but it was funny. You know, they also used to over imbibe too. And I got, I'll never forget this. I got to the end of the short story and I literally stood up from my desk and I said, Oh my God, this is the prologue to the screenplay, but it's not a screenplay because screenplays are all third person. They're not written in first person. You know, he did this, he walked here, whatever. Also, screenplays don't really have a voice to them. It's mostly he did this, he did that. Whereas the characters are, yeah, they might have a, separate voices, but there's no narrator's voice in a screenplay. There just isn't. It's just the way they are. I said, this is the opening Jack will come in and rescue Miles from this and off they will go on this trip that I had tried to write in sideways, excuse me, actually it was originally called Two Guys on Wine and as a screenplay, but it didn't work. I didn't even, literally, it so didn't work. I didn't even show it to my agent or anybody. And now I said, oh my God, this is a novel. So in a way with Sideways, it really started in the nineties when I started 
because of the stuff with my mother and, and being dead broke, divorced, being nowhere in life and starting to venture up to this place to just, you know, get out of my head. I'm ideating all the time. So when people ask me how long it take you to write it, the moment I had that epiphany at the desk with that short story, and this was going to be a novel now, it only took me nine weeks to write it, but it was really building in me at least eight years, but really building in me more like 30 or 40 years. I was looking for, you know, and it kind of, my second feature film has two characters who have are a little bit like Miles and Jack in some ways. And, and it goes back, to a lot of things, but I would say definitely starting from the time I went up there, I well, I wrote a novel, La Prisma. It was a mystery novel and it didn't get published. And in fact, it got close, by the way. Had it been published, they would have contracted me for the two subsequent books. They would have been the Raymond Savage book two, Raymond Savage. There would have not been a sideways because I would, and I would have been happy to have staked out San Inez Valley as a detective, you know, the same way Dashiell Hammett staked out San Francisco and Raymond Chandler and LA and Ross McDonald, Santa Barbara. I would have had the San Inez Valley. It was perfect. There's rich people, there's poor, you know what I mean? So that's all the, I was excited about it. We got very close with getting a lot of Christmas uh, published, but it didn't get published. I wrote that short story. I wrote, and I wrote the first draft of Sideways in nine weeks. And then I was kind of scared because I just laid it all out. I said to myself, I'm in such a despairing place. If I don't make this funny, this is going to be a bummer. And, and I needed, I needed the comic element. And um, so I looked at it, I gave it another pass and I gave it to a friend in the business. I don't want to name him because he's taken way too much credit. So I'm not going to even give him the courtesy of naming him here. And all, you know, I was hoping maybe he'd option it. I mean, I'm dead broke, Rich, you know? And he said, no, give this to your agent. That's all he said. So he loved it. And I gave it to another friend of mine, Angelo Pizza, who wrote Hoosiers. And he, he, was, you know, he used to come to the wine tastings a high-end screenwriter, and uh, and he loved it. He just fell, and I go, well, God, this is great. So I gave it to my agent, who had come out to Endeavor from you know New York, and um, and took him about a month to read it, which isn't unusual. And then he loved it, but you know, then after he loved it, uh, and I didn't think he'd like it because he he went to Harvard. He's he's a gay man. He's I, I just. You know, I was, I was almost afraid he's going to dump me. How could you write something so, you know, whatever. He's so, he, they so loved it. Then I gave it to my ex-wife, Barbara, who now was winning awards with her film that would soon win the Oscar. And she told me to burn it. I, and she wasn't joking. And she, she says, Rex, would you stop telling that story? It makes me look bad. I said, no, you did. You told me to burn it. And in fact, a woman, I hadn't even had a date in three years. I was so broke. I literally, I, I, I had no woman in my life for three words. I, I'm not, you know, when I wrote Sideways, I bared my soul. I dumped, so I might as well bear my soul here. This is who I am. And, and she, very smart woman, had a master's from Yale, already liberal. And she wanted to read the book because she kind of hear, heard now there's this book out there and whatever that some people are, there's some heat around it, as we say. And um, I, I said, sure, read it. And she came over to my place. And I mean, we hadn't been intimate yet, but you know, it was, we, there was an attraction there. And I'll never forget this really smart, educated woman looked me in the eye and she said, how could you be so personal? And she said it, you know, um, scathingly. And I said, and that, now I got defensive. I said, how could I not? Isn't that the definition of art? You know, I never, I didn't see her again for five years. 
the closing night of the New York Film Festival with 2,000 people at the Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center, but that's another story. Um, so, um, and then another person had read it and told a friend of mine, this is the most disgusting, vile thing she'd ever read. So when Barbara said that, it really hurt me because we'd been together for so long and, and I really have a lot of respect for her creative opinion and, you know, her aesthetic opinion. And, and also she's had a lot of great constructive criticism on scripts that we had worked on, whatever, but obviously just wasn't her cup of tea. I think I was, it was so personal. It was so revealing. And, and even though it's fiction and even though it's comedy. And so she, so she kind of backed off and said, I'll come over and I'll help you with it. So she has my manuscript printed out and I have to tell this story. And she comes over to my rent controlled house where we live together. Now she's with a new husband living in a million dollar home in Hollywood. He's wealthy and whatever, blah, blah, blah. We live different lifestyles. And she's laid the manuscript out on the coffee table and she's going through it. And of course she's crossing out fuck and pussy and whatever. And, and I'm like, yeah, this isn't working and whatever. And she got to the scene in the movie, but it's, it is verbatim adapted from the novel where they have to go back to get Jack's wallet. And she had every page with a huge X through it. Take out, take out, take out. I went, oh my God. And I literally, I was so devastated by her criticism because to me, I thought that was one of the funniest scenes in the novel. Um, and I didn't, I, today I'm different, Rich. I, I actually have more objective perspective. I can I'm more pachydermic, you know, thick skin. I can take it more. But back then I couldn't, you have to realize I'm dead broke. You know, our, our, it was, was, was the industry guy, was Angelo, was my agent, Jeff Taylor, I'll name him because he's he was great. Were they all wrong? You know, um, and I disappeared for three days. I mean, I didn't go on a bender and I just disappeared. I wouldn't answer the phone. I, was, I was just literally was in a paralyzed state of depression. Um, and then finally my agent, I called him back. You, you know, you're supposed to call your agents back right away. But, and, um, you know, he said, where are you been? I said, well, and he knew Barbara actually. And I said, well, Barbara, she hated the novel and she particularly hated that scene. And he talked me out of the tree. I said, we can't go out with it. We, I'm not going out. I don't want to embarrass myself. And, you know, I said, this could ruin my career. <laughs> I think he said, Rex, you have no career. <laughs> you, you have no career. <laughs> he said, besides, she's wrong. I love it. So there was this, it was really polarizing. The, the manuscript, Rich, it was very, very polarizing. And, um, so it was a two-prong attack. So he's now in Hollywood. So we're going to go out to film people because it read like a screenplay, but we're also going to go out to the publishing industry as well. And I now have a new publishing agent because he handed La Prisma off to one, a colleague of his at Curtis Brown LTA. So here we are a year before or two years before I have no agent. I'm nowhere. Now I actually have two agents. I've got a publishing agent and I've got a film a book to film agent, but at Endeavor. Endeavor is powerful. It gets you to other people there. Um, so my publishing agent went out with it and he was met with vilifying rejection letters. Way, way worse than La Prisma. La Prisma, they were actually nice. You know, the real reason La Prisma wasn't published, it was about two guys, an older semi-retired detective and a a guy like me, a burned out screenwriter who meet on a golf course, but then it ultimately leads into a mystery. And the problem is, is that 95% of mysteries are read by women. Who's going to be interested in two men who play golf? Yeah, that's what he told me. He said, otherwise I could, otherwise I love this novel. Seriously. Um, but 
with uh, with sideways, he just got. Um, I mean, it was it was derision on steroids. You know, I mean, I, I think one I remember. This was just an oversex screenplay because it was a very it was a very dialogue and scene driven novel. Whereas a lot of novels, you know, have a lot of you know flowery prose and you know go on and whatever. Uh, I don't want to get into a sidetrack here about literature because I read a lot of literature and I read a lot of you know very deep literature. I don't read commercial fiction, to be quite frank with you, you know, um, but, you know, maybe they thought it was, I don't know, too, or maybe they thought it was, these two guys were too disgusting, or I, I don't know what it, what, what it was. Um, so he pulled it after about 16 rejections. He just pulled it because he had many more publishers to go to. And on the film side, you don't get rejection letters, but nothing was really happening with it on the film side. No one really got it. However, it's important to note, I, and I found this out retrospectively, is one of the submissions Jess Taylor, my Endeavor agent, made was down the hall at Endeavor to David Lawner, who is the, or was the agent for Alexander Payne. Alexander Payne now was coming off his second film, Election. Election now, although it wasn't a big hit, it made him inside Hollywood a force to be reckoned with. He, If he wanted to do something, good chance actors would work with him, good chance he's going to get the money. So, but I didn't know that. It, now he's hot. He's got piles and piles of manuscripts, you know, uh, uh, you know, in his agent's office, whatever, and um, trying to decide what his next project is going to be. I, I only found that out after the fact. But six months into the submissions, it had been pulled from my publishing agent and, um, and my film TV agent, Jess Taylor. I saw him at a book signing and he asked me to meet him there. And he had a very hangdog face. And I went over, I said, hi, Jess, how's it going? What's wrong? He goes, I'm leaving the business. They crushed my soul. So now it's like, oh my God, you know, um, now, now I don't have a film TV agent and my agent, my publishing agent, who by the way, said to me, Rex, I gotta be honest with you. I don't even like this novel. They can be, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't even like this novel. Oh, great, Mitchell. Thank you very. Uh, thanks for the support. I really appreciate it. You know? um, and Jess, I the next day I saw him in Beverly Hills, and he was just so he, his spirit had been killed, and he didn't make it. You know, uh, people don't realize it. Not all these agents are you know successful. And I walked him to a psychiatrist's office, and that's that's where we were six months into the submissions. The book that he and these two industry people just thought was going to be an automatic slam dunk movie, book deal, whatever. Six months later, nothing. Crickets. That's amazing. Uh, I'm going to come back to that. I want to mark that, but I want to back up for just a second. I'm curious. Okay. Uh, you talked about the 80s, especially, and, and your work there. I'm curious, coming out of school with this idea of, of film and writing, what what was the reality like versus what you expected as you got into the industry? How how did the industry how was the industry compared to what you expected it to be? And, and was it something you hoped to stay in longer, or was it something you were excited to get away from? Well, first of all, I came to Los Angeles um, to make independent film, and independent film back then in the eighties was really not like it is today. Of course, digital has allowed anybody to make a film with an iPhone now, you know, but back then, as soon as you put film in the camera, it was expensive. I mean, very expensive. A lot of people don't realize even at film, famous film schools like UCLA, many films were never finished because if it didn't work in the editing room, 
Where are you going to get the money to buy new? I mean, you buy that raw stock. You've got to process it. You have to make a work print of it to even begin editing it. You have to have all this equipment. So it was very, very expensive. And so I came up there not so much to get into the industry, but to make in independent cinema, maybe be like the next John Sayles or, or Jim Jarmusch. These were, you know, people who were getting some success, you know, a little bit later, Steven Soderbergh. I'm, I'm missing some names in there, but, you know, the real pioneers, if you want to know the truth, in the indie film world. So we're making, you know, I knew all along that there was the possibility it could it could be an entree to the industry. You're always hoping that you're going to then, you know, get representation and maybe you're going to get a deal to do a Paramount picture or whatever. So I really hit once Barbara came up there and, and we got married and she had a trust fund. Once she came up there, I realized that, um, you know, um, you know, that I, you know, that it was difficult on the second film because the first film didn't really make any money. It was sold to German TV, but it didn't make money. We had to raise money for the second film. So we were really doing it outside of Hollywood. We weren't doing the traditional route of writing screenplays, you know, trying to get an agent like a lot of people are doing. I, no, we, we had our own resources and we were going to make motion pictures and those motion pictures were going to get us in. I will say this, at the end of From Hollywood to Deadwood, before Island Pictures butchered the film, we showed it at the Mill Valley Film Festival and to a really good reaction. And we got, um, I mean, not mind blowing, but a good reaction because the film was, the script was great, but it was, it was handcuffed by, well, I mean, a number of things. One is it was over ambitious. You know, it's, it was shot on over a hundred locations for a budget of under a half a million in the analog days. And you, you have to compromise a lot. Barbara was the lead actress. She's never acted since. That's all I'm going to say because I don't want to hurt her feelings. You know, there was no chemistry between her and the lead. But the script, um, Kevin Bacon, the actor, had a company and his head of development at Sony, at then Columbia TriStar, they called me and they read one of the reviews in Variety and Hollywood Reporter about the Mill Valley screening. And they were good reviews, you know, and they read Hollywood to Deadwood. That was the name of the second film from Hollywood to Deadwood. They read the script and out of 300 screenplays, I had no agent. They called me in and, and they hired me to write a mystery. So suddenly now I've been hired and Barbara didn't want me to do it. She says, I can't believe you're going to write a script for Kevin Bacon. You're, you're a sellout. I said, Barbara, it's $55,000. It gets me into the writer's guild. But I think she saw in a way, a famous film producer. I had coffee with him eh, 10 years ago just casual coffee, he produced Elephant Man, Jonathan Sanger. I said, how come you producers treat us writers so shitty? He goes, Rex, and he, he laughed, you know, and he goes, Rex, when we hire you, we feel like we own you. And kind of once, once writers understand that, you know, and Barbara, because she'd poured all her resources into the two films, I mean, the first one was her trust fund, the second one was family money, all came from South Dakota, because her parents are wealthy and they know wealthy people. Um, and, and even though we sold it to Island Pictures and we were able to break even with financiers, we didn't make money and the film didn't do well. It did get released, unlike the first film, but it didn't do well at the box office and the career was pretty much, that's it, you know. Um, so, but I did get a job writing a script for Columbia TriStar. That was at a time when they, if you had any kind of resume or name, you could literally you could go in and pitch an idea and they would just do a deal. My friend, Angelo Pizzo, he was doing $350,000, $400,000 deals. 99.9 .9 of these scripts never get made, but it's a huge industry, you know, as well as TV is. TV back then, it's different today with streamers, but they, um, they would, you know, they commissioned 
tons of stuff in development. It was big time money and most of it was never made. But that kind of, that got me, you know, suddenly I'm on the lot at Columbia TriStar, now Sony, and I'm seeing stars and, you know, and I'm taking meetings, Molly Ringwald, there's Kevin Bacon. Yeah, you know, I felt like I, you know, I, I wasn't like floored by it. They're just, you know, normal people, but to me, but I, I didn't come up with the idea that I was going to necessarily be a studio director. You know, I think I really had hoped that I would continue to, and this is important, is, is to mature my voice. You know, I really was about my voice. And I think the one reason, I mean, the opportunity to write for Kevin Bacon wasn't going to do that. It was a job, but at least it got me into the Writers Guild. It legit, it got me an agent because I didn't have an agent then, you know, um, and even though he dumped me and I got my first lesson in agents or whatever, um, you know, it, I, I wanted, I think there's two things. One thing that most writers or filmmakers are always looking for when they start out, they embark, they leave college or whatever, is you want validation. You want, you want somebody to legitimize you. And the fact that your, well, now ex-wife financed your movies Yes, they're real movies, and Island Pictures paid six hundred and fifty thousand dollars for from Hollywood to Deadwood. It's a lot of money back there in in nineteen ninety. I mean, really was for an indie film. Uh, I still felt like it wasn't me. It wasn't you know whatever. So Kevin Bacon, that felt legitimate to me in some ways, you know. But I never really I saw myself as somebody who was trying to find my own voice in some ways, and I'm and I worked, but. You do have to compromise. I wasn't trying, like a lot of people go to LA, again, back then, trying to get into TV. There's big money in TV. It's not in feature films. It's in television. And they just want to be on a staff on a show. They And, and you're never going to remember them. They're never going to have a sideways. They can say, yeah, I worked, I was one of the writers on, I don't know, Friends. Oh, and, and do you remember season four, episode eight? I wrote that one, but 15 other writers came in. You know what I mean? Yes, you're you're a millionaire now today, but you don't have anything that's uniquely yours. I always wanted something. I, I couldn't be part of that group. I wanted something that was uniquely mine. And I was willing to suffer for it. I was willing to go, you know, you know, um, I was re really willing to walk to the edge of the precipice for it. And in fact, I did. You know, some people have early success and they burn out. Um, I don't know. So the indie film career, you know, it was 10 years making two films, Rich, 10 years out of my life because I was in post-production on those films. And I don't want to go on about the stories because I, you know, I, I was privileged to have the opportunity to make them and we were able to finish them. Many indie films were never finished back in the analog days. But at the end of it, that was the end of my directing career. I mean, to be honest with you. So, you know, getting into Hollywood. Yes, I got onto Alien 3 again through Barbara. She was David Fincher's assistant. And, and then she went to become the head of um, development in New York for Jill Micklin Silver, who was kind of an indie director in the East Coast, but more successful. And they hired me and I wrote an original screenplay about my mother and her stroke that was much beloved and it never got made. And so and by 95, you know, I get my mother into a home in 96, I'm nowhere, I'm, I'm nowhere. And, and, uh, there, and also there's, it's less so today, but there's ageism in Hollywood too, you know? You're 40 and you've never written a TV show. Don't even bother. You know, where was I going to get money to make a third indie film? I mean, I was lucky to have two chances. Um, but all along to me, I was never going to give up. You know, somebody said something to me about Miles Raymond in Sideways, played by Paul Giamatti. 
because I, I love to ask questions because I feel so removed from it. You know, I said, what is it about Miles you like? What, you know, because Jack is just kind of a, he's a character everybody knows, but Miles is kind of unique and it's written in first person from the standpoint. I'm, so I'm not saying I'm unique, but I am that character in many ways. He said, Rex, he's down, but he's not out. And I guess that's who I was, you know, down, but not out. I, you know, I'm just going to keep fighting, keep writing until finally just somebody takes my rent control house away. And now I'm living on the streets. In fact, La Prisma, the novel begins with a burned out screenwriter living in a tent at Halama Beach, which is up there in Lompoc. And he gets drunk out of his mind. He kills a wild boar and they, you know, they, they haul him in. I mean, but that's who I imagined I was at that point, living out of a tent. I actually saw myself in that place. Um, so I'm always, it's not that I, I, I wanted to go there, Rich, so I could write about it. But wherever I go, I'm going to write about it. But I did learn with Hollywood to Deadwood, even though it's a mystery with two detectives looking for an actress who's walked from a film in the middle of production that takes them all the way to Deadwood, South Dakota, I did learn in there, there's humor between those two characters. And if I can create, you know, um, opposites, from opposites, I get conflict, I get tension, I get humor, I get drama and I can get resolution. And I learned that from Hollywood to Deadwood because the script is way better than the movie. It really is. Um, and so for me, I just, that's, that was the life I chose. I didn't have a fallback. You know, in fact, I've often said to people, I know this may sound a little bit, you know, harsh. Um, if you have a fallback, you've already semi-admitted defeat. Seriously. And, and, I, and I, I don't blame you. There are many times I would have said, if someone would have called me and said, Rex, how'd you like to come over and teach, you know, uh, indie filmmaking at a community college over here? I would have said, great, I need the work. You know, I, I would have done, but, but to actually have that fallback, you know, um, I, I, I didn't have that, you know, and I'm somebody who, you know, I did, I, at UCSD, I did very well. You know, I, I could have gone, I, I got into USC graduate film program, you know, and I dropped out of it. I could have gone to a lot of places that would have given me the degree and potential that I could have, if it didn't work out, I could have gone on and done something else with my life. But I always felt like, no, it's either this or I'm just going to blow my brains out. Honestly, that's, that's how I felt. I mean, maybe not in any kind of tragic or depressive way, maybe even kind of in a black comic way. But this is who I am. This is what I wanted to do ever since I fell in love with literature and film, whatever this is. And I am going to find my voice. I'm going to find it. And I was finding it in different ways. I mean, Hollywood to Deadwood is sort of genre because it's mystery. And La Prisma is definitely genre. It's mystery. But Sideways is not genre. It is truly, you know, it's an original of my own making. Yeah, you can say it's a two-hander comedy or whatever, a buddy-buddy film. But it really is totally original. And I think it's the it's the blend of comedy, but then the it's not just ha 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 comedy. It pulls back to to the you know it, it where it touches your heart and soul. So I mean, we can get on this later, but we you know we've done sideways the play, and when I saw that, you know, the play is based on my novel. It's not based on the movie. So I was able to. In fact, I can't use anything in the movie that's not in the novel. But there wasn't anything I wanted to use, and the and the movie's a very faithful adaptation of my novel. Just so you understand that, but but the play now is it's a pure distillation of my novel. And those actors are there; they're live. And we did it first at a fifty seat theater in Ruskin, and um, Ruskin Group Theater in Santa Monica, 
and I demanded we pour high-end wine every night for free. And they thought I was crazy. Well, I made that happen with one phone call. And, um, and it, it was actually the most, because the two feature films I made were very hard. When you write, it's very lonely. And then the rejections just, you know, just kind of put the stake in, you know, digs it in deeper. But to see that play and to see those actors come together and to have, you know, we we're going to only have 15 performances. So 50 seat theater, three performances. It ran 100 performances. Every one of them sold out. I was there every night. I mean, not inside watching the play, but I was there to see them come out at the intermission, you know, at the end. And it was the most, it just was so joyful because we can talk about this later, but when Sideways finally was a movie and came out, you know, as a novelist, I was peripheralized, even though it's a very personal novel. And Alexander Payne, who did the adaptation, was very faithful to it and he won an Academy Award. So in essence, I'm behind two Academy Awards, but I don't have one with me. I try to tell people, but I wrote Barbara's Oscar winning short. And obviously I wrote the, you know, the Bible, the source material for Sideways. And, uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. I don't really care about that. But it, it, it was for me, um, you know, when, when we did the play, I, I really, I saw the timelessness of the story, of the characters, of the conflicts. And, and there, was, there was actually, the play has, in the, and this comes from a famous director who did it at the Loyal Playhouse, Des Mackinough, and went to a 400 seat theater. He said, Rex, you know, your play, I love the movie, but the play is richer and more emotionally complex. It has more heart and soul in some ways. The Jack character has more heart and soul. He's not such a one note, you know, I don't know, sexual terminator. And Miles goes to kind of a, a darker place in some ways. And yet they're both, still it's still very funny too. And so I think I finally kind of found my voice, but then when the novel met with such rejection, and I mean, hostile rejection, Rich, I mean, the, the, the well, all my work is now literally just four miles from where I'm talking to you right now here in Del Mar at the University of California at San Diego in special collections and archives. I mean, it almost brings tears to my eyes because I left to go to LA with five boxes of writing. I never had kids in my life, nothing. And back in 2012, they said they would take my work. I came back with like 50 boxes. I left with five. I can't, you know, I had have a friend come, you know, literally that's all I did. And, you know, there's, it's mostly, you know, it's obviously a lot of manuscripts and disc and, and some films and whatever, but you know, that's, and I, I'm getting off track, but that was the genesis for my novel, the archivist, because the woman who, who did um, the art, uh, you know, who archived my papers, um, she spent eight months. She read all my journal entries and I finally met her at a faculty club dinner. I said, and when she told me that, I said, my God, you know me better than I do, <laughs> you know? And so we've gotten to be, you know, really good friends and close. And she became the inspiration for the archivist, which is back to a little bit more of a mystery, but the main characters are women. Um, and it's a project archivist who comes in to take over for a predecessor who has died. And, and through the course of, she gets into the dark archives and she discovers a treasure trove of love letters between her and this famous author who they were doing, you know, uh, processing the papers of. And so, and it's, it's been long and in the process, but going all the way back, you know, um, and so I, I just wanted to get into a different world than just wine and whatever, but, you know, doing the play was, was really, um, and, and the movie too, were huge validation that I really went my whole life and never really had.
you know, how long, you know, how long can you hang on? You know, is, is what I tell a lot of people ask me, Rex, what's the secret or, you know, got any advice for me or whatever, you know, and, you know, how long can you go without, you know, without giving up? I mean, it's, um, I mean, this is no life and it's not like, it's not like I had any choice. I mean, I, when I was writing sideways that nine weeks, I mean, I had process servers knocking on my door at 6 a.m. Not every morning. They were pounding on my door, trying to, I don't know, deliver a lawsuit from a, a past, you know, past debt or something. You know, I, I don't answer the door, of course. But when I was writing, I just kind of, it, it, I lifted up. I, I, I just, I, I escaped, it was liberating. I escaped from reality. And then suddenly, you know, the writing is over after three hours and, you know, you can only write so much a day. And then, you know, it, you're still living it in your head. You know, the, the next day's work is unspooling because it had been building in me. But, um, and so that part is always freeing to me. And I've always said to people, I don't care about all the money I should have made from sideways and didn't. Everyone thinks I'm rich, you know, but, um, but it, if, if I have free time, free time is, that's all I ever care about that I can create it. I can't, I can't control what the world thinks of me. Obviously, a lot of people hated sideways. Of course, many have now recanted, obviously, you know, and I've had, you know, a rebirth with the play and now the musical, sideways the musical, you know. Um, unfortunately, you know, theater is dark, but we have almost all the music for that. So, you know, it kind of it lives on. And there's a there's a good chance, you know, I'm gonna be going to New Zealand to write sideways for New Zealand. So there's been two sequels, vertical and and, and Sideways 3 Chile. And I got a chance to go to the country of Chile and my wines that I'm coming out with are from the country of Chile. I fell in love with the country. And um, so there's that, but, you know, deep down, you know, maybe I'm a little more of a businessman today than I ever was, but um, it's always just been about the work and my voice and finding that voice and not being, being unafraid to bear my soul, being unafraid to write what I believe, you know, I mean, again, I, I don't mean to bring her up again, because I have so much respect for Barbara. I'm very much, she's the chair of NYU Tisch School of the Art Graduate Film. It's the most famous film school in the world. She's the chairwoman. And, um, and she told me to burn it. I, you know, and I don't, I mean, I wasn't, you know, or erase it or whatever, but I, you know, I almost did. I, I felt devastated by that critique, you know, and, um, and I almost took out a scene when if we continue the story is, is that after my agent left the business, I was really nowhere. So his successor took me on, but you know, there wasn't the same kind of enthusiasm. The, I had two other people pushing it, you know, Angelo and the other guy whose name I won't mention, but they, nothing had happened with them. And there's a lot of interest that had been lost. But meanwhile, the unpublished manuscript was sitting in Alexander Payne's agent's office. And he had an assistant, Brian Beery, who's a really smart guy. And, and he doesn't get any credit. His name isn't mentioned. And about 10 months to a year after my agent who left the business had submitted it, saying, you've got to read this. This would be great for Alexander. Brian Beery read it. And he went nuts for it. And he gave, all this is happening without my knowledge. I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm, you know, thinking about, you know, the, you know, hunting departments and sporting goods stores. And, you know, meanwhile, this is going, you know, and, and so he, this is now after the fact, but he, 
gave it to Alexander with a ringing endorsement. Alexander Payne never would have read an unpublished manuscript back then. He's being offered big time money to do big novels and the corrections by Jonathan Franzen and other, you know, I mean, and you know, he turned them down. And and Brian Beard said, no, you got to read it, you got to read it. Plus, his agent is pressuring him to do a big $50 million film, not some small film about two guys going wine tasting. Um, and then I remember, I don't know if I if I got maybe this is a tad apocryphal, but it's close. I think I was down at a Baja Fresh. Back in those days, I was signing up for every credit card I could sign up for. Sure. They'd come in the mail. I don't remember those days. And you just like, sure, yes. And you get 300 bucks, of course, you know, 80 million, you know, dollars interest. And I think my credit card was declined on a $6 order at Baja Fresh. I come home and I had one of those ancient ancient answering machines. Maybe you're too young to remember this. You had, you know, where you'd play the back the cassette tape. And there were two. One was from the, the ultimate producer, Michael London. That's all I'll say his name. And he's screaming on the phone. Of course, naturally, he um, now he wants in. And, uh, oh, my God, you know, I just, you know, I just got a phone call from your agent, you know, blah, 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 you know. And then and then my agent's assistant called, my new agent's assistant called and said, oh, my God, Alexander Payne just got off a plane. He just read sideways. It's going to be, you know. And I'm, I'm live. I just had a $6 Baja Fresh order declined on my credit card. And, and I'm nowhere. I mean, I, I'm really nowhere. At this point, I'm not even really writing anything. I, I'm pretty, I'm not really sure when that happened you know i don't know i i i think it was pretty much i hate to say it it was pretty much time to walk into the walk off into the sunset you know i'd given it my best shot you know and suddenly there were these two calls you know people screaming on this answering machine so i call back and i meet alexander payne and he's a he's a very affectionate guy and you know, and he hugs me, you know, and he says, you're a genius and all this stuff. And, you know, after 200 rejection letters, you know, I don't know, but thank you. And he goes, you know what I loved about your novel so much, Rex? I said, what? He goes, your characters are so fucking pathetic. And I was like, whoa. Okay, I was going through a rough patch there, but you know, just make the movie because the movie's gold. You know, that's, you know, and um, anyway, then he's, I'll never forget, he said to me, he goes, you know, I was reading your novel on a plane back from the Edinburgh Film Festival. I was with my girlfriend and I was, you know, it was funny and it was the pages were turning. And, but I just kept thinking it was going to kind of turn formulaic like all these books do and these screenplays, whatever. But when I got to that scene where they go back and get the wallet, that's when I knew I was going to make the movie. Now let's go back to my ex-wife said, take out every single page. And I almost did. And he, I, I honestly think he might have made the movie just so he could, he knew that scene was going to be a laugh riot. I mean, he knew it, you know, so, and I almost took it out. And these are sort of those kind of, those kind of random almost, you know, those things that, I mean, I've said to people often many times that within 10 miles or 15 miles of say, you know, central Beverly Hills, you know, in other words, the film industry, whatever, there's probably a hundred screenplays that with the right configuration of people orbiting around them and developing it right would win 10 Oscars. They're just, but for whatever, you know, fickle reason, they just didn't get made, you know, and here I am suddenly, and I've got one of the hottest directors saying, you know, I'm going to do this, you know, and, um, and so Alexander and I, we, he said he wanted to do it as like a little $2 million film, shoot it in super 16. I'm going around, right. Been there, but, we took a trip together up to the San Inez Valley and, you know, we really hit it off and he, he just loved it. 
Um, but unbeknownst to me, of course, you know, he's got other projects, you know, I mean, he's not talking about those because he doesn't want to, you know, disillusion me. And, um, and so, you know, I thought there, we did a deal in early 2000, in January 2000, with Artisan Entertainment, who were cash rich from the Blair Witch Project, which had made them millions of dollars. And we did, and it was front page, Daily Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Pain Goes Sideways. So just think where I was at, say six months ago, they had optioned the book for very little money, 12.5. But even that for me was good. And front page trade news, Daily Variety, Hollywood Reporter. So my publishing agent, I still have him, Mitchell Waters, not anymore, but back then, the guy who hated the novel, he suddenly goes out with the novel. My God, your front page, guess what? Everybody rejected it. I'm on the front page of the Daily Hollywood Reporter. It's going to be a movie. No, they still rejected it. You know, and he, he pulled it again, you know. And in fact, Sony Japan, Sony Publishing of Japan bought it based on those trade articles. And I thought I was going to be the only author whose book would be published and he wouldn't be able to read it. That's actually, I said, fine. And they bought it for 20 grand after fees and everything. I mean, I got 15 grand, but that was a lot of money for me back then. You know, I was living in rent control, Santa Monica, and um, I had roommates for the first time since college. I mean, you know, it was just a horrible period, even still. Then, then the boom, you know, so all that excitement, I think it's going to go into production. That's January, 2000, March, 2000. I get a call from Alexander Payne. And he starts out casually, oh, my girlfriend and I are going to go to this restaurant tonight. I want to ask you about some wine recommendations. Oh, great. Good to hear from you, Alexander. I mean, you know. Um, and oh, by the way, um, I got to tell you, um, Jack Nicholson changed his mind. And this little script I wrote called About Schmidt, he now wants to do. Imagine, Rich, you're walking down the street and you're texting and you hit a light post. I mean, or you're just sitting there and suddenly someone comes up behind you just because I know film and I know that, oh, my God, you know, this is going to be two years of waiting. You have pre-production, production, post-production, post editing, you know, and um, and then obviously the release of the film, all the marketing, the interviews, and two years. And it was exactly two years. They kept re-upping the option. You know, I. You know, I met a nice woman who was an attorney and she had a good paying job and so came in. And so now I, you know, things got a little better. Right at that same time, Barbara won the Oscar. So it, even though I didn't direct the movie and even though I wasn't on stage and she had, um, she didn't even invite me. She invited her new husband and her mother, whatever, you know, good. That's very sentimental, but, uh, you know, but she knows where her bread was buttered on that one. I wrote her Oscar speech and that was a big deal. I was at a party and I literally, cause you have to remember 10 years of making those films with her and we didn't succeed, even though we sold the second, but we sold both of them, but they didn't succeed. And then of course the nineties with my mother and all that stuff that I've been telling you about. And now in 2000, there she is in front of 50 million people, you know, and, and when Jude Law and Kate Blanchett called out her name and they hand her the Oscar, I mean, I fell to the floor crying and I don't, I don't cry very often. And the last time I cried was when I saw my net profit participation statement from Fox Searchlight, but that's another story. Um, so, 
you know, it was a big moment. So, you know, it got me another, I changed agents and was getting more meetings. You know, it wasn't like really leading to a lot of work, but there was also a lot of, you know, bear in mind, Alexander had options sideways. And even though he went off to do about Schmidt, agents can still say, he's got a project with Alexander Payne. He just won an Academy Award for a short, you know what I mean? So you feel like you're back in the game. You feel like you're relevant again, you know? That was a huge moment, but people don't realize how many years it took me to get to that moment. I don't, I don't want people to feel sorry for my suffering because the loneliness, the, you know, is, um, I just think that goes with the territory. That's, you know, that's what I sign up for. You know, I get, to, I, I hate it when people, you know, whine and cavil about, you know, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he wouldn't take, you know, return my call. That's been my whole life. I mean, what's interesting is, since the pandemic and the, you know, pretty much have been locked down since March or whatever, my life hasn't changed. I wake up and I'm doing better than ever. Now I've got, you know, a couple of book deals and, and so many things going on, my wine and, and sideways, the musical and the possibility of going to New Zealand and all those suite of projects. I don't have to be anywhere rich. I've been training for this moment my whole life. Social distancing, fine. No one would come close to me. <laughs> when you get near me, great. You know, you know, I don't, I don't have to go to a job. You know, it's like, finally, you know, again, I shouldn't make light of it because it's, it's horrible what's happening. And thank God, of course, today, you know, we're starting to see ultimately the rejection, you know, the, the election results and thank God, maybe we're going to turn the corner and I don't want to make light of it. It's, we are awful what we're doing, but for me, it hasn't changed for me. I wake up, I, I'm used to being alone. I don't need to be out in the world. I don't need to be with people. I love to be with people, but I don't need it. And it, it doesn't stop me from doing what I'm doing with writing. There's no excuse. Writing doesn't owe you anything. Put your, put your fucking ass in the chair and, and turn, turn the computer on. I mean, that's what I did when I wrote sideways. I was writing a short story called the bullpen. I got to the end. I said, Oh my God, you know, and I, and in nine weeks dead broke process servers knocking on the door. I wrote a first draft of what is now what I think we would call an iconic movie, you know, um, it certainly has, you know, at least the world I live in, I get that validation now every day where I went years and got zero validation, no validation at all for anybody, not even like my neighbor, you know, uh, you know, and now, you know, and it's not like that's what matters to me. You know, I think what matters to me is that I set out on a path to be a storyteller, whether it be through film, whether, and that didn't work out or through writing, writing novels and, and, and wanting to touch people, wanting to touch them in a way that they would respond and, and say, God, I, you know, I get this all the time, you know, God sideways. That's one of my favorite films. I love that film, you know, whatever that means that's, that's worth all the millions in a hedge fund to me. I would rather have that and a roof over my head. I live a very modest life. I'm not complaining at all. Um, I would rather have that than all the millions that many people made off of sideways. And I don't want to go down that road because um, that will also be in my autobiography. But a lot of people had their, um, when the movie came out, they had their, uh, you know, their business hats on and they leveraged it brilliantly, especially in the San Inez Valley. But other people did too. Michael London leveraged it, you know, with a big production deal. And I didn't. I just kind of was reveling in the success of it. And, um, and only it's only been really the last five, 10 years that I've started to think, you know, there is something here and, um, and, and other people, you know, helping me and so on. But the real gratification for me 
um, and this is not false humility at all, is really just in somebody saying, in fact, the other day, I actually sold a golf club to somebody the other day just for the, you know, I'm mean, selling my golf clubs off. And, um, and I, I, I bring up sideways, this is in Del Mar. He goes, oh my God, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, this is some guy in a parking lot, you know, out here, you know, uh, that, that's what means something to me, Rich, is, is it really is, you know, I've said often to people, you know, there's one thing money won't buy. And of course, they always say happiness. No, I say, no, money will buy you some happiness. I can get a first class ticket and go to Costa Rica and go surfing for a month in a nice villa. I know that seems pretty joyful to me, but money won't buy you immortality. Doesn't mean you're going to be remembered. And it's not that I set out to write to be remembered, but I think ultimately I set out to write to hope that I will reach people at a level that I, you know, hope to reach them at and who will, that I will, you know, we can talk about archives for a second. I mean, it isn't, isn't archive about being remembered about your work being, um, you know, um, cared for. I, I like to think of, you know, the archivist who worked on my stuff cared for my work for eight months there. I mean, when she took me down into the stacks, and said, there's your archive. And there's these beautiful, you know, um, I guess, you know, folder boxes, whatever, you know, with beautifully typed, whatever. I mean, my God, I mean, I mean, I just had a whole bunch of, I had 40, 50, just, you know, U-Haul boxes of stuff, just beautifully arranged, finding aid and whatever. And it's like, I don't know, 25 linear feet. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's a lot. You know, I know Jonah Salk has a lot more and so does Dr. Seuss, but, you know, it felt pretty good to me, you know, 25 linear feet, you know, and, uh, you know, I guess size does matter. No, I'm kidding. Um, and, you know, I, a tears came to my eyes. My God, you know, this is, this is what I did. You know, I, I went off and this, there's, there's what I did. And here it is, you know, now um, memorialized in some way. If somebody wanted to look at old manuscripts or rejection letters on sideways, there they are here, you know, University of California. And so, you know, I, I guess that's, has brought me a sense of serenity that I, I did do something that was um, meaningful enough or memorable enough or whatever that some, that they, you know, yes, it's my alma mater, but that they would ask me to, you know, have my work next to Dr. Seuss, next to, I don't know, some pretty famous poets and stuff. I mean, what an honor. I mean, it, it is, that's the ultimate honor. And, and, and if, you know, I have a lot more work in me, you know, with the archivist coming out and, and, you know, possibly a sideways for New Zealand, you know, my musical and other stuff, but um, I couldn't, you know, frankly, uh, that's, I couldn't have hoped for more, you know, and a lot of it was lucky when it came to sideways. I mean, you know, just the fact that my agent came out from New York to Endeavor. Without that, it, the book never gets to Alexander Payne. Honestly, it doesn't. If Brian Beery hadn't been his assistant, let's say he'd had an assistant who was my ex-wife, who was that kind of, you know, um, you know, she was at that, if she was actually higher level in development than he was, she might've read it and said, no, you know what, this, this is a piece of crap because she thought it was a piece of crap. So there's a lucky thing there. I mean, I, you know, you have to kind of keep doing it. You have to, you have to be there to get lucky. You know, I mean, the famous golfer Ben Hogan once was asked a long time ago, you know, do you think golf is a game of luck? 
And back in those days, people thought, you know, it wasn't really an athletic sport. It was a game of luck, which is a joke now. And Ben Hogan, of course, knew this. He looked, you know, this guy practiced nine hours a day and he looked at her and said, Riley, well, you know what? The more I practice, the luckier I get. And, you know, that's, I think that's, yeah, the more, I, you know, I'm going to, and, and some have gotten way more, way luckier than they should have or they, they've written books or made movies that frankly didn't stand the test of time. Frankly, they're crap, but for whatever reason, we won't name the names. They just made a lot of money. They just hit a certain nerve or whatever it was. I, I would prefer to have the kind of luck that, you know, I would be, that, the, you know, maybe sideways won't be remembered 20 years from now, but I can promise you it's 16 years now since it was released, 20 years since I wrote it. And, I mean, I live in this condo complex with 18 units. Everyone in here knows the movie. Think about that. I mean, that's what an honor that is. I mean, what a, I mean, that's, that's brand recognition as my partner on the wine says, Rex, that's brand recognition. <laughs> you know? We need to score on that with it, with your, you know, but for me, it's, um, you know, that people know that that's, uh, I mean, wow, that's really thrilling you know, that, that people would remember and, and they'll, they remember scenes. And of course they name it, you know, the famous Merlot scene and whatever, but um, I, and I don't, I don't get tired of it. I don't get tired of being nice to them. I don't get tired of, you know, writing. I'll, I'll be happy, excited to write sideways for New Zealand. If it happens, it's, it's close, but we'll see knock on wood, you know, here, um, you know, I wrote vertical, which goes to your great home state of Oregon. In fact, comes right to McMinnville. And, um, you know, I had a lot of problems with the person who published it, but I don't want to talk about that. But, you know, and that had a dark side to it. But, you know, and the book celebrates my mother, but it's not, it didn't just like the hangover, it didn't just cannibalize the first one or anything. It's really miles 10 years later. Now he's a successful author and, you know, Jack is on the skids and divorce, which most people could have figured out. And I wanted it to be a true sequel, something that really, you know, where the characters evolved and they're all, you know, Miles's mother's had a stroke, so we've talked about that. And and he, um, you know, she wants to be with her sister in Wisconsin, and he gets offered to be the master of ceremonies at the great International Pinot Noir, you know, celebration in you know uh, McMinnville, Oregon. And uh, so he, right up where you are, and um, so he hatches a plan to rent this, you know, handicap equipped ramp van and pile in Jack and his wheelchair bound mother and a Filipina pot smoking Filipina nursemaid. And they take off on this crazy road movie. And of course, one of the questions I get asked a lot is why wasn't it made into a movie? And, you know, and that's, a, that's kind of a long answer, but I'm going to, I've been talking a lot. So let's have you reel me in uh, rich. I can do that. So many questions. So I, I'm curious at this point, uh, uh, you, you just talked about kind of the delay, the about Schmidt uh, factor and, and delay. When when Sideways does come out, uh, you, you've created this entire in, in, incredibly personal piece of art to you that has been already polarizing even before it was published. Tell me about the your reaction to seeing it on the big screen and the kind of an, the initial reaction from, from those around you and, and kind of critical reaction and what it what it felt like to finally see it realized? Well, there's kind of two answers, but I'm going to give you the the more upbeat part of it here. But um, so, you know, 
we're in post-production on the film now, so we could talk about the shooting of it and pre-production, other things, but let's just talk. We're in post-production now. So they're doing, you know, what are called focus screenings. They're showing it to people and they're getting, so you're already getting a sense that you have something here. People are really laughing and whatever. Alexander Payne had a, he had final cut. No one was going to tell him how to cut it. Unlike my second feature from Hollywood to Deadwood, they came in and cut 20 minutes in an afternoon, just, just ripped it out of the film. Um, in fact, they gave him an extra three minutes because it was playing so well. Then, um, so the first screenings before the release of the film were at the Toronto Film Festival. There were two and I wasn't invited. That's the dark side. Things I was invited to, things I wasn't, you know, which is all I have to blame Michael London for. But that's, you know, what happens when you have a success. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of spotlight hogging. There's a lot of credit grabbing. And it just, uh, to me, it's just unethical and whatever, but they will do it. They will take advantage of you. But on the, on the joyous side, look, I get, I get the, you know, I get phone calls out of Toronto, two screenings sold out. People went bananas, bananas. They now fly to Santa Barbara to do a huge premiere at the Arlington, which is a 1500 seat theater. Of course, it's a, you know, it's sold out invitation only. And so that's the first, I'd seen it twice um, with only maybe 15 people and 50 people. And I, I got a sense that something was there. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at myself on the screen, admittedly fictionalized, but you know, I am looking at myself on the screen. It's not easy to do, but the screening in Santa Barbara, the audience went nuts. I mean, beyond nuts when they're laughing like that, especially again, the wallet scene, you know, thank you, Barbara. And thank you, Jess. I mean, the laughter was so outrageous. You couldn't even hear dialogue for two minutes after. So whatever qualms you might have about, you know, they've, you know, taken your life, this thing, you know, but you have to understand, it's not like I'm, um, you know, it's not like I'm ashamed at all. I mean, I bared my soul. I mean, in a way, you know, it's, it's, if, look, if I write a cop movie or something and it's, you know, and it's made and it's not any good or it doesn't get a great reaction. So what? I just wrote a cop movie, but this is, you know, Rex Pickett, Miles Raymond. I, I am that guy, you know, whatever. And so when you hear that laughter and you get that applause, you know, it's validation at a higher level. If you're rejected and you had written this, the rejection would be way worse than if you'd written that, you know, mystery or sci-fi, whatever. So it, the validation is great. I think a lot of people that I meet artists there, well, the, the woman who looked at me and said, how could you be so personal? And she was an art, she was a performance artist. She couldn't go there. I went there. So you're talking about validation at a Himalayan height, Rich, you know, because let's say it was a cop movie and it was liked. It's cops or whatever it is. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, okay, it's making money, your agent loves you or whatever, but this is this is your soul on the screen. You've torn something from your soul. That is that is me sitting on that bench there going, my life is, you know, it's all over after he finds out his novel's not going to get published. I mean, yes, it's fictionalized and whatever, but that is me up on that screen, you know, beautifully um, portrayed by Paul Giamatti. I mean, he he really, he he nails it, you know. I mean, again, different than me in some ways, but um, but like I've said many times, I've joked that, uh, you know, in anyone else's hand sideways, the novel could have been two guys doing jello shots in Cabo. I mean, it, it did, you know, he shot it in the, the real place. He cast, he was very, very faithful to the, 
to the tone, to the heart, to the soul, whatever. Then from Santa Barbara, we now are the closing night of the New York Film Festival at the Alice Tully Hall holds 2000 people. It is the closing night of the New York Film Festival is the plum spot, the opening and closing night. I know they've redesigned the theater, but it was 2000 seats back then. And the audience went, and this is a totally different crowd because in Santa Barbara, you kind of have a pro crowd who knew about the movie. So, you know, they're going to like it. But I also out of Toronto, they, they can be the Toronto Film Festival. They can be tough. This is a New York Film Festival. And they just went nuts. So at that point, you know, you're, you're pretty relaxed. You know, you have something. Now there's the critics. And one after another, you know, I go to Metacritic. I, I don't use Rotten Tomatoes. 100, 100, 100. I mean, every day is Christmas, Rich. I mean, you know, because I wrote it at a low point in my life. I optioned it. It almost didn't get made. And there's another story about that where Payne almost made another film after About Schmidt before Sideways. That's a crazy story that I don't even like to recall because it, you know, uh, I might have to go to the bathroom, you know, but, um, but he, 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 you know, he changed his mind and, and whatever, and he decided to come back to sideways, you know, and now it's, you know, audiences are going crazy. Critics are just, you know, going nuts. It was released in October. So now you're right at that time when awards are happening. So you don't, it's not just the Academy Awards or the Golden Globes, it's New York film critics. It's the Chicago film critics on and on and on. We're winning everything. I mean, literally every day is three Christmases. So I wake up, I look at the trades. Sideways wins five awards at the Boston Film Critics. Or, you know, I mean, you know, at that point, I guess maybe back then when people were telling me this is vile, it's awful, it's an oversex screenplay, um, you know, whatever they, I mean, they were saying some awful, maybe I did something right. And, you know, as we sit here 20 years later, I do listen to people, but, I, but I also don't. I mean, how how could, I mean, what if I'd gone in and, and again, not to rag on Barbara because she's a very smart person and very successful in her own right, although she's never made a film since that Oscar winning short ever. But what if I'd taken her critique and rewritten the novel, for example, not buried it, not burned it, but rewritten it because she was trying to be nice to me. It, I, she was going to have me boulderize it. It's basically is what she wanted me to do was boulderize it, take out this you know, gross stuff or whatever. And, uh, you know, and I might've done it. It wouldn't have been the same movie. At what point, you know, when, especially when you have no money, you know, you're going to do what people want. So I got to give Alexander Payne a lot of credit. You know, I've got to give Brian Beery a lot of credit for reading it and just laughing and saying to Alexander, you got to make this movie. You got to make this movie. Um, you know, and I give Paul Giamatti a lot of credit. You know, I think the key people, personally for me i think others i think are fantastic in the movie could they've been played by somebody else and yeah but paul is is key alexander is key because he he gets wine and he gets my sensibility with some shadings but we won't go there um but like i said he's he's 90% faithful to that and now you're winning over 350 awards when literally 3 4 years ago honestly I should have just shot myself, not not out of incredible depression or anything, just because I'd given this life my best shot, no pun intended. It's time to exit. There's no nothing else for me. I, that's how I thought, honestly. In fact, La Prisman, like I said, opens with a 
a burned out screenwriter basically trying to kill himself. Uh, that's how it opens. And, um, and even, even Miles in the novel and Sideways the novel, and this is in the play, but it's not in the movie. It probably would have been too melodramatic in the movie, but after he finds out that his book's not going to get published and he drinks from the spit bucket, the next scene is he goes to the beach and tries to drown himself and Jack drags him out of the water. That's actually in the play. And it's a powerful moment. Again, it would have been melodramatic. I think Alexander made the right move. He just had the two of them sitting on the beach and they have kind of a melancholy, you know, kind of talk about, well, you know, it's just, you know, my life's over or whatever, but that's who I was. And suddenly now here I'm three, four years later and, you know, five Oscar nominations and we win for best adapted screenplay, which is went to my heart, of course. And I did get invited to that, but I didn't get to sit with the sideways crowd. You know, so there are the dark sides or the New York time, uh, the New York Film Festival. I found out there was a party upstairs for all the above line people. I was invited to the movie, but not to that party. People excluding you, you know, and, and that was all Michael London, who is going to take a huge hit in my autobiography because he did. I handed him Alexander Payne on a silver platter. He did not option the book and um, and he just lied and lied and lied, He's, you know, and and took credit for a lot of things. And, you know. And that's, you know, when you have, you know, failure is bad because nobody wants to talk to you and nobody wants you in their life. And it's a very lonely place to be. Success is everyone now tries to manipulate you. And you have to be on the key lead for that. And I'm just celebrating and doing my thing. And, you know, a lot of people were taking advantage of me, but I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on that, Rich, because, you know, like I said, when the movie came out in uh, October, 2004, I mean, literally through to the Oscars every day was there was some rewarding kind of thing happening. It was just un unbelievable. And so that that's the long winded answer to your question. I mean, I wasn't just validated. I was validated every day. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that is Peter Rayner, one of the great film critics wrote for New York magazine and then Kristen Stein's monitor. And he was talking about Alexander Payne's first three films, Citizen Ruth, Election, and about Schmidt. And he's basically a satirist. You know, he tends to kind of put people at arm's length, poke fun at them, you know, whatever. And he's talking about that. But he, but he said in his review, which was a rave review, he said, but in sideways, Alexander Payne traded in his sarcasm for a soul. And I love that line. Now, of course, you know, at the risk of immodesty and whatever. I've, I've joked to people. I wish he would have said, but in sideways, Alexander Payne traded in Alexander Payne for Rex Pickett. But, you know, that's that's asking for too much from a film critic. But in a way he did. That was my soul. And But give Payne credit though. It's not like he was forced to put my soul up on the screen. He, when he first said to me, you know, what, you know what I loved about your character so much, they're so pathetic. You know, he could have made them two pathetic guys in some other weird wine country doing, he can do whatever he wants to that novel. He can create whatever he wants. No, he, you know, he honored that in some ways. I will tell a little anecdote because um, the, in the, um, Alexander Payne gave, and he, had, he has a, a writing partner, but it's, it's really all Alexander Payne. He gave me every draft of the screenplay. He was interested in my input, you know, what, you know, and uh, when he finally came back to, to doing it in 03, whatever. And, and when I talk to people at you know, various stagings of my play or online or whatever, you know, I always get asked the Merlot question, of course, you know, and everyone knows that. 
you know, uh, did you, you know, do you hate Merlot? Did you, how do you feel about screwing up their industry and all this other stuff? And I've answered that question a million times. But one of the other things I get is, is Virginia Madsen, Maya, her speech about wine and how soulful it is. But here's the real story behind that. In three drafts of the script, Miles has a speech this big about Pinot Noir and how it's haunting and, you know, you, you know, and it's difficult and thin skin. He's going on and on about Pinot. She says nothing in three drafts of the script. She says nothing. Zero. And I said to Alexander after the third draft, you know, I wrote, I, I wasn't going to write anything because he, he wouldn't use it, but I wrote in the margins, Alexander, she's got to say something. You can't just have him monologue and she goes, huh, or whatever. So in the fourth draft came this beautiful complimentary speech by her, you know, and, and this is one of the most memorable moments in the movie. So they, and I, and I literally almost had tears in my eyes when I read it. I, I thought, God, this is a beautiful speech. I mean, it was called from stuff in the book and everything else. Um, but he wrote it, you know, I'll give him credit for it. And they shot it. And then he tried to cut it and cut it. Even in, even in the mix, when you have picture lock, I was actually in the mix one day. I didn't get invited very often, but whatever. And, and he was going up and down the aisle saying, we got to cut that scene. It's too sentimental. It's going to date my movie. It's going to date my movie. It's too sentimental. But I've said to people, and they talked him out of the tree. And it's really one of the most, here we are 14 years later, it's probably one of the most memorable scenes. And a lot of reasons is, is that a lot of people don't understand is that in the movie, Virginia Matson only has 12 screen minutes. She's only in one tenth of the movie. Yeah, so you're, you're shaking your head there. And, and I asked people that. I said, how much time screen time do you think Virginia Matson has? And they'll say 30 minutes. I'll go, no, try 12. You take that speech out, she has nine. She's a cipher. She's a nobody. I mean, she's literally just, yeah, I mean, she's nothing, you know, in that movie. That speech, though, you know, gives her an inner life. It, it's so much, it's so much, you know, often who was the Howard Hawks famous filmmaker once said a great film is, is, or a good film is three great scenes and no bad ones. And, you know, when you think about it, maybe there's more than three, but there are a lot of, you know, but that is a great scene. Not only his speech, which sets it up, but her speech, it's soulful. It's erotic. It's a come on. It's it, but it also it shows how knowledgeable she is about wine and whatever. And bear in mind, Sideways has a lot of has a lot of you know women you know fans. And I think without that moment, which wouldn't have been in there had I not pushed him you know for it. And even then, he wanted to cut it. He he thought it was too mawkish, really. And I, I mean, my God, Alexander, you know, if you know, it, if you, you know, earn the, the sentimentality card, play it, don't just, you know, drip it out, you know, throw it out there because, you know, um, you know, because you can't, you know, you're just trying to be, you know, schmaltzy or whatever. I mean, literally, if you've earned the card, play it, you know, and, and, and he did, and the rest, the rest is history. But I think for women that that, that scene really cements for them, you know, a character that they can identify with because, up until then, it's pretty much a buddy-buddy picture, you know, and, and bear in mind, too, another kind of little insight is the novel's written in first person from the standpoint of Miles. You can't go anywhere that Miles doesn't go. That's it. That's, that's the laws of literature. In film, you can. You, you could go off with Jack and Sandra O. Oh, you know, she changed her name from Tara to Stephanie, but we won't go there. 
you could go off. You could go off with him, but he never does. If you watch the film again, which I know you said you did, it, Miles Raymond, Paul Giamatti is in every single scene of the film. It stays in the first person. So that makes Sandra O's character a de facto tertiary character. You follow me? And so that's why she gave herself a motorcycle and a name and a, you know, a kid, which is not in the novel. And of course, she was married to Alexander, so she got away with that. He wouldn't let anyone else get away with that because he's really very controlling and in a good way, in a good way. But anyway, I, it didn't didn't hurt the movie. But but for Virginia, because Miles Paul Giamatti is you know it it is in, from his point of view, she's a she's a, a true secondary character. So, but if you take that speech out about wine, she's really a tertiary character. I mean, and bear in mind once she finds out about the wedding, you don't see her ever again. But in the play and in the novel, she shows up at the wedding and there's tears in people's eyes. I'll play, I'll play that card if I earn it. He wouldn't do it. You know, in fact, actually the screenplay always ended, uh, for those who remember the movie, it always ended with Miles, it's a couple months later and he drinks, you know, his Cheval Blanc in a Burger King, whatever, that's not in the, in the novel, but that's fine, you know. And then he gets an one voicemail on his answering machine, and it's her leaving kind of a heartfelt message. And the screen went to black. That's how the script ended. And I said, Alexander, I didn't like the ending, you know. And he had told me early on, I can't have her show up at the wedding, Rex, because that will be too sentimental. And I said, okay, I, I, I'm with you there. It might be on film. It might, you know, it might sort of, you know, kind of, you know, you know, sort of come to the point of almost, um, you know, I guess, um, you know, I know melodrama in a way. And so I said, so when she, when he hangs up the, you know, when he hears her message and the screen goes to black, why don't you just hear her gunshot? Yeah. You know, and I was joking, and but he heard me. So then he, in the fourth or fifth draft of the script, he wrote in Miles Drives Back to San Inez in the rain. So we know it's a different season. He, he really thinks through that and knocks on her door. So he kind of met me halfway there, but that, but that her speech on wine would never have been there had I not pushed him ever. And I, I'm not taking credit, he wrote it, but I take full credit for that speech being in there. And I, and I learned from the play and talking to women that in the play, the women have more, they have much more, um, their roles are bigger, especially Mai's role. It's actually much bigger because first of all, you, you want to, an actress who has at least a half an hour of something to do. You don't want her there for 12 minutes. You're not going to get anyone good. And even, um, you know, uh, her real name in the book is Tara. So Sandra O's character, there's a big scene in the second act of the play. So in the movie, she just hits him with a motorcycle helmet. It's all over in 30 seconds. But in the play, it's about an eight or 10 minute scene. I mean, she goes completely nuts. And when she leaves, there's almost a standing ovation from women who, you know, I mean, so I, you know, I mean, but I love, it's one of my favorite scenes in the play and I can't wait to see it staged again if we ever, you know, well, especially in the musical. In fact, I just heard the, her song that will be in that place. Her, she has a song right there. So I gave the women bigger roles because I think that a woman once said to me when she saw the play at the Ruskin Group Theater was sitting outside and it was after it was over, said, Rex, you wrote a great love story. And I thought she was joking, you know, that I was, you know, Jack and Miles are closeted homosexuals. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, Miles and Maya. And I thought, you know, cause she had such a kind of a small role. And um, 
I said, you know, but it's, it ju- it's something hit me and like, you know, cause she'd seen the play. So they are bigger in the play. So in the musical, their roles are even bigger, especially Maya. She has five songs, three duets and two solos, Maya. So go back to the movie now, even with the wine speech, she's only in the movie for 12 minutes, one tenth of the movie, Rich. And you take out that scene and you would think she was only in the movie for five minutes because the scene is, you know, it's kind of like Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. He won the Oscar for best actor, but he's only in the movie for 18 minutes. But the, those 18 minutes are so powerful. You, It's like the whole movie. In fact, he really doesn't even qualify for best actor. It's really a supporting actor, but they put him up because they thought he would win and he did. Uh, and there's no rules about that. So that's how powerful those, those moments are. And again, not that it's lucky. I didn't want to, anger Alexander, but I, you know, I, when I read the script, that's just naturally what I thought. She should have something to say here, you know, and, um, and those are, you know, there's other little stories too, but those are some of the little, the little things that, you know, I wonder what the movie would be without that speech, because people, especially women bring up that speech a lot. And I'm, you know, I'm going to take credit for it being there. And and I'm grateful because it, it's also given me inspiration and has, you know, with, the play and now the musical has made me make it. It's really the musical is more, is as much a love story between Miles and Maya as it is a buddy, buddy thing about, you know, having to part company and one's going off to his wedding. It's real. Those are, those stories are equal now. So my question for you is after all this, is it, is it a wine story? What, what, what is the role of wine to you in, in sideways? Well, for me, you know, like I said, I started going up there just to play golf and, and get away from my, my shitty life in LA. It's as simple as that. I mean, I just had to get out of my head. And then I discovered it was wine country and I was also going to these wine tastings at Epicurus. So I'm not sitting there saying, oh, wine is gonna be a great metaphor. You know, and of course people have since written books and critics have said, you know, and you know, they're going sideways in life or, you know, and sideways really is just British slang for being, you know, a little tipsy. But, you know, um, it, it, to me at the time, it was, you know, I've always been somebody who has to be really impassionate about something, you know, whatever it is, movies, writing, you know, wine, whatever it is, really just, and I wanted Miles, his life is, is su- such a wreck. And it, it is, it, it, it has, you know, it, it's literally like a trap door is about to spring beneath him. And he's about to be in free fall to nowhere. I mean, truly into nowhere. And I want him to believe in something. He doesn't have a woman in his life. He's divorced. He's, you know, he's lit in the novel at any rate. He's living completely on the edge. I mean, so on the edge, he has to, you know, pinch a few hundred from his mother, which you know, I've gotten a lot of, you know, you know, blowback from that, but whatever. Um, you know, I wanted him to believe in something, you know, and, and people all want to believe in something. Sometimes it's the wrong thing. It can be, you know, a cult religion that ends up being crazy, or it can even be, uh, let's not go into politics, you know, a president who's a nut job, but they want people, there is a need in people for a belief system. And I want him to believe in something. So to me, that, that becomes, he's going to take his friend there. This is something he knows. And, um, but I'm not, when I'm writing, I'm not, I'm not thinking about all these things that, you know, I'm just thinking story. I'm thinking about, you know, something, um, you know, about, you know, 
opening myself up in a way and, and letting you see inside who I am and part of who I was then and today too, but, but differently, but part of who I was then was someone who was just, you know, beginning a, a passionate love affair with wine. And so I wanted that to be a part of it, how we interpret that, how people want to go back. But I didn't sit there and map out a story about a guy. I mean, this is who I was. I went to wine tastings every Saturday and I learned a lot, you know, and I, and I have the damaged liver to prove it, you know. Um, but, you know, and I was going up the San Jose Valley and, I, and wine tasting seemed like a cool thing to do. I mean, I'd done it before, but not that regularly, you know. And, um, you know, it was a, it's kind of a lifestyle that almost appealed to me in a way. Um, but I don't, I don't, I mean, we, we now know after the fact that it was really, you know, integral in some ways to the success of the movie, I suppose. And it, it's also to the wine industry, how they've, you know, glommed around it. I mean, there's probably never been a, you know, movie there's never been a movie like that and there probably never will be a movie about wine there have been some others i don't want to name them but i mean sideways is the definitive wine movie you know because it's it's not just a recreation of an event that wasn't done well or some other you know whatever i mean it came from inside me it's it's who i am so wine is just to me another character but the main character is really is me and my voice you know this person who is living on the edge who's struggling and and he just so happens to you know be into wine because it's it's a release for him it's an outlet it's it's something he can um embrace with you know a level of passion as we know from vertical he's let himself you know uh grow dissolute from this you know success has gone to his head and he's drinking too much and and whatever and you know I'm not that you know, that person today, you know, I, I don't, I'm not as I was then, but that's who I was. And I bared my soul in vertical in many ways. Um, but I don't honestly, um, I don't think it's really more than just a character, but you know, you don't know when you're writing these things, um, how big of a, you know, um, you know, uh, how critics and others are going to, you know, magnify the you know importance of of that in some ways you know i mean it's like when i wrote the archivist for example it is about being in an archives it is about being in an archival world it takes place a lot at the library and whatever but i was really in there in that book i was more interested in the tragic love story and then a young a project archivist a young woman who kind of comes of age and ultimately her predecessor maybe didn't die by suicide maybe there was some foul play you know so it's really kind of a an adult nancy drew in some ways and yet people could say oh were you are you really into archives and everything well i am in, in the sense that i i did know somebody i do know somebody and and my work is in an archives but it's a setting it's a background for me so the san Inez valley is a setting it's a background and it's about wine so i have to you know i have to kind of you know, um, be beholden to that a and when I am, I have I want to get it right. I hate it when I watch some movie and they pour wine, it's clearly Kool Aid, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to get it right. I'm not going to be the person who writes and oh, there's just wine happening to be in or I don't know what I'm talking about. And, you know, I think I got it right. I know I got it right in vertical and because I, I asked a lot of people and, and Alexander definitely got it right in the movie. I mean, he, they were 
you know, doing mixtures to make sure Syrah looked like Syrah and Chardonnay looks, I mean, they're, they're serious about this. You know, he didn't want to be called out for being wrong. There's very little, you know, but I think really um, the main interest there was, was in trying to, you know, I, I love making people laugh. You know, I, I love, and that's what I wanted to make them laugh. And I love poking fun at, at snobs, wine snobs. And even though Al, it's funny because Alexander makes Miles a little bit of a wine snob, but the truth is I'm not. I, people say, oh, Rex, what do you have in your cellar? I say, I don't have a cellar. I'm not that guy. You know, I'm not, my wines that are coming out from Chile, which I'm so excited about, they're all under $15, all of them. We're coming out, you know, four wines and I'm not going to, you know, you know, promote them here or whatever. And um, I'm, you know, I'm so excited about it, you know. And if I go to New Zealand, there will be stuff in the book about wine because my character will be, but the the journey will be something almost kind of, um, you know, met, meta, you know, I know meta narrative, I guess that's a bad word. It's really, the journey is really into his soul. You know, it's going to start in the North Island and, you know, and maybe in the South Island, maybe he meets a woman and she has one barrel of Pinot Noir that she's crushed with her feet. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it is until I get there, you know, if I, if that happens. Um, so wine will be, it's a component because, and, and to answer your question, actually a little more seriously, I will say this, when I was going to the wine tastings up at Epicurus, one thing I, I love language and I love words. So for me, wine seems to kind of evoke this expressive, and a lot of it is, is bombast, you know, Robert Parker. And a lot of it is, you know, um, I know grandiloquent in a way that's sort of ludicrous, but I love that people actually reach for words and for language and for metaphors to describe something that, to, that appeals to me in a way. And so, you know, Miles play, and it's very much in the, it's more in the play than in the movie and in the novel, I suppose, is where he loves to play with words. You know, he loves to use big words. He loves, and, and wine really, it, it, for some reason, say, unlike craft beer, unlike distillates, they don't unleash, you know, poetic, lyrical, they, they really don't. I mean, what can you say about beer? It's barley, water, yeast, you know, hops, that's it. You know, it doesn't have vintage. It doesn't have country of origin. It, it doesn't, you know, whatever. I mean, to me, Oregon is just uniquely different. Willamette Valley from Sonoma, from Chile, from, you know, San Inez Valley, you know, and you can, it's, a, it, you know, and, and it, and so it, it brings out it, I don't know, it, it evokes a level of expression, you know, in me that I also, so I, I think in that sense, wine for me is, um, it's a trigger, I guess, for that. It allows me to kind of go off, you know, in a, in a way to be able to use language, you know, even if at time it comes across as pretentious or snobby, but really Miles is, is more self-effacing than he is in the, um, in the movie. Uh, he, he really is um, somebody who um, is, is not, he's not a snob. He's not, he's not pretentious in that way at all. I'm, I'm not that person, you know. So wine, wine functions in that way as a, a kind of a, a vessel, if you will, for kind of going off poetically or lyrically. And yes, people, of course, the famous wine speech between Miles and 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 Maya there, they've talked about, you know, he, he's really talking about himself. He's not talking about, you know, that he's thin skinned. Mean, I get it, you know, but when I was writing it, when Alexander was writing it, we weren't thinking that, that oh, this will be a metaphor for who he is in life. And when she's, you know, that she's using it as a come on or whatever. No, they're actually talking seriously about it. 
but I think wine can be very metaphorical. You just don't, you never want to write as a writer, some advice for aspiring writers, well, you never want to create a metaphor. A metaphor is something that somebody discovers after the fact, you know, but to me, wine is rich. I mean, look, is if it's two guys going off on a beer bash, that's not the same. Wine has, you know, there's something different about it. You know, there's something to explore in it. There's there's a sea of mystery in wine. There's no sea of mystery in craft beer or, or distillates. There really isn't, you know, or other stuff. But in wine, there is. Every year is different. Every region is different. Every country is different. There's over a thousand vinifiable grapes in the world, you know. So yes, I guess now I'm kind of, you know, going back on what I said, it is a great inspiration for me, but it's more of a, an underpinning to the, it, it allows me to get to places in myself in a way. And that's ultimately what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give you as much of myself as I can and just hope, you know, you don't reject me. <laughs> so one of the things we talked about before when I, when I was emailing with you was about the, the, the sideways effect and something that we've seen a lot in our work in Oregon wine specifically. Um, we've, we've had people who talk about being here in Oregon making wine and, and suddenly Pinot Noir becoming something everybody wanted to try. Which are people who saw the movie and were inspired to come to Oregon or come to another place that made Pinot Noir. Um, tell me about that from your perspective. Uh, obviously, it's not an intent clearly when you're writing. You're not, you're not intending to affect a wine industry. But tell me about your your kind of reaction to hearing about that in the last 16 years about people who maybe tried Pinot Noir for the first time because of you or, or started making wine or, or something like that. And about the, the the kind of the your reaction to actually something you created having an actual physical effect on, on, on a global wine industry. Well, real simply, I feel really great about it. I mean, that I, you know, that despite the Merlot thing and actually even the Merlot thing is I really helped that industry in some ways because it took the bad actors out and left the great ones, you know, stand, they actually thank me to this day, the ones who are making, you know, uh, Schaefer, Duckhorn, you know, out of Napa, um, you know, so, but off of the, and, and that Pinot Noir was only 1% of the red wine market. And I mean, there are millions of stories now, I mean, prior to Sideways, so prior to 2004, you know, you could, um, go to a restaurant, you get the wine list and under reds, you might not even see Pinot Noir. Now it's the first wine you see and there's a ton of it, you know. Um, it, it, to me, I still think it's an extraordinary grape. I think it is difficult to do. Um, I, I, I didn't make this up. I genuinely fell in love with it over Cabernets, over other wines. It, it's, got a, it, it's got its own unique sui generis aromatics. Um, and it's, you know, it can be the most disappointing wine. You can buy one for $50 and be disappointed. You can buy one for 25 and be blown away. It, it, it has, it's more feminine than, than cabs and Syrahs and others. It's, um, I feel really great that Pinot Noir went from 1% of the red wine market to seven, 8%. I mean, you have to measure it not by volume, but by price. And I don't know the figures and I don't really care. I mean, how validating is that, that you go up to a place, um, you know, and suddenly you, you see, you know, just Pinot Noir stacked in a Whole Foods or a sandwich shop and they've got Pinot Noir on tap. I mean, that sounds horrible maybe, but my God, and you know, you can say that to the person, hey, there's the sideways effect right there because this sandwich shop up there, I forget what it is, you know, um, 
Pinot Noir on tap with, you know, with a Chardonnay and one other wine. I mean, Pinot Noir, I mean, this was a wine that only, you know, a very, very um, small group of wine nerds really, and, and you know, basically it was Russian River and it was Burgundy, you know, and you're talking expensive wines here. You know, you've got to have some serious wallet to play with those boys, you know. Um, and so, yeah, people rushed out and I'm sure a lot of them, you know, even with Pinot, there's been a lot of, we won't name names here, but people have cashed in on that. But certainly it's not just Pinot Noir, it's how many people embraced wine, how many people said, you know what, maybe I shouldn't show up with that bottle of two buck up, Chuck, you know, uh, which is my phrase, you know, because uh, it makes me look like a Philistine. It makes me look like a, like a crass person. Maybe I'll bring, there actually something more going on in this bottle. Maybe I'll, and for the people who are serious about wine, the winemakers, I mean, with rare exceptions, they pretty much love me, I would say, you know, I went, you know, to write an original screenplay in, um, in Tuscany and in a specific appellation in Tuscany called Cante Classico, Slargi Sangiovese. I mean, they don't even speak my language. They all knew, they all knew sideways. So, and that's Sangiovese, it's not Pinot Noir, but they understood what it did for wine. People took wine more seriously. Not only that, the movie, it wasn't just Pinot Noir, which is still my favorite grape. I just still think it's incredible, but I, you know, I love all grapes. I mean, out of Chile, the Sauvignon Blancs are just mind blowing. I mean, they're the best out of there, in my opinion. But it also made wine tasting and going wine tasting. I mean, the San Inez Valley, there are a lot of young people up there today that don't even know sideways. They don't even know what they're up there, but they're staying at the sideways end. They don't even may, I mean, most of them, excuse me, do know the movie, but a lot of them don't. But they just know, hey, God, in, in a 90 minutes, I can be in another world. I can let my hair down. It's more women than men in the San Inez Valley before, you know, the pandemic and everything else. Literally, the guys are at home watching football. The women are like, let's go and, you know, I don't know, girl bond or something and get high and and, and whatever. So it, I think it it opened, the movie opened people up to a culture in a way and something, you know, I still to this day just going to San Andreas Valley or Willamette Valley, which is so beautiful and whatever. I mean, think of it from my standpoint, I'm dead broke. I just played around the golf, you know, I'm sweaty. I go to my $29.99 windmill in, now the sideways in, shower. And I go over to, I don't know, it was then Sanford, but it isn't anymore with Chris Burroughs, the guy who was the hat on. And, you know, he's actually the real guy there. And he's just sitting there all by himself. He's got these wines lined up that are 20 to 50. There's no tasting room fee. Plus Chris, you know, he pours pretty liberally. And there's birds chirping. I don't hear cars. I live in LA and it's free. And I'm going, what's wrong with this picture? I mean, you know, to get out, you know, I think, I don't know who said it, you know, the great Carl Jung when I was 19, that was another huge thing. I took a couple gap quarters when I was 19. I read the entire collected works of Carl Jung. 20 volumes. Took me six months. I read six hours every day for six straight months. So yeah. And that was a very, very formative part of who I am today, you know, but I think he said, you know, there's something you, you need to, you need to turn your, your soul outward to nature in a way. And wine takes us unlike other alcoholic beverages. It takes us into nature. It takes us, what's more beautiful about being in wine country and just going to, I love that little fox and tasting room, that tool shed, or, or being up in Willamette. I mean, to this day, walking into a tasting room, just 
seems like a very civil and relaxing and almost um, cleansing thing, you know, if you can keep your wine under control, a cleansing thing to do if, to the mind, you know, when, you know, and, and that's coming from me who is struggling and writing and struggling and getting rejected and everything. And you go up there and it's like, God, you know, cause I didn't, you know, I've hardly been on vacation my whole life, Rich. I don't, I just, I've hardly ever gone on Cause I don't, I don't deserve one. I'm a writer. You know, most people work, you know, a job and they deserve their three weeks off and they take their three weeks off and they pack up and they go somewhere. I don't do that. You know, I, yeah. When I was going up to the San Inez Valley, I just would be so frustrated and bottled up about whatever it was. I just throw my golf clubs in the car and it would be 10 in the morning. All the traffic's coming into LA. I'm going out. I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm doing something right, even though I'm, I'm not, you know, no, seriously. I, in fact, my memoir, which is called my life on spec was going to be called going against traffic. I think if, if the traffic's coming in and you're going out, you're doing something right in life. That's what I feel. And then, you know, soon you're in Santa Barbara. Next thing you know, you're at La Prisman. I, I wish I could just paint this picture of you of a golf course that doesn't have homes on it. It just has soaring hawks and turkey vultures. The wind would come up. There'd be nobody at the course. You know, you wouldn't have to wait two hours for your tea time. And I played a lot by myself. And you, you know, it just was so um, relaxing, liberating. And to me, wine is like that. And so I think a lot of people discovered it because of Sideways. Now, there are people in the wine world, I will admit, and I know I'm going to name names. And I had one person, you know, a little drunk up in the San Inez Valley. And he said, you know, Rex, it was all going to happen. And I'll, I'd be interested in your point on this. It was all going to happen anyway, Rex. Really? People don't realize how powerful a movie is. You know, I mean, you watch Lord of the Rings and people started flying to New Zealand and they don't even mention the word New Zealand in there. That people just said, wait, where was this beautiful place? You know, but Sideways has actual places you can go to, hitching posts. You know, Frank Ostini owns the hitching post. Trust me, he's very happy. He's a very, very, very wealthy man. You know, I mean, and he was just, running a restaurant that was probably feeding his family at best, you know? So I don't think, you know, I laughed at the guy saying it was all going to happen anyway, Rex, you know, we were coming on anyway. I don't think so, Rich. I think Sideways took something that was there that I wasn't the only others knew about it. And by turning it into, you know, a fiction, which is what the movie is, which then makes it, movies are also a dream. And then that, that it's, when you're sitting in that dark theater and you see that dream and then you think, my God, I'm only two hours away from that dream. You know, if you live in LA, you're only two hours away from it. You know, God, I'd like to be up there. And then you go up there and then, you know, maybe you went up there to see some of the locations, but then you, um, God, I'll come back. And, and so there's been, so it hasn't, hasn't the tourism up there not only hasn't abated, it has actually grown, but not just there. Sonoma, which is mostly Pinot Noir past Napa, as the number one wine tourism destination in the world, because they're separate, separated by a mountain there. Willamette Valley, I mean, a lot of the great winemakers in Sonoma and Napa migrated up to Willamette because the land was cheaper, not, not anymore, because Sonoma is so expensive. Most of those guys are hobbyists now, or, you know, they literally are, they're rich.com people, even though they're making great wines. You know, you can, how, do, how, how can you make, you know, make a living when an acre costs 300 you know, $50,000 or a half a million in Napa and you can't scale it up. 
It's not like Amazon who can build another fulfillment center. You know, you only get one year and you only, you have to place them so far apart. So a lot went up to Oregon. Oregon must love me. I hate to say this because maybe some of them don't like the book. I don't know. But come on, it's 85% Pinot Noir. We know that. And this is a movie that, you know, celebrates, you know, Pinot Noir. I mean, truly, truly celebrates, you know, that grape in a way and where better to go than, you know, Oregon. I mean, my God, the International Pinot Noir Festival, I, I'm not saying it wasn't successful before, but it has to it has to have been the last 15 years off the charts. I mean, truly off the charts, you know, probably it's standing room only for all I know. Uh, how does that make me feel? Wonderful, great. I, I'm, I'm glad people have, you know, fallen in love with a, a really a very little known grape, only wine connoisseurs knew Pinot Noir that nobody else drank it. A lot of people didn't get it. And now you had to, in order to get it, you know, you had to pay attention to it. You had to try some different ones. You had to develop a palate. Think of it this way, Rich. You know, I could take somebody young and say, you know, here's, um, you know, here's Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. But you know what? If they hadn't read at least something leading up to that, maybe J.D. Salinger or whatever, they're not going to get to Crime and Punishment overnight. They have to work to get to that moment. And to me, we go back to that earlier analogy I gave you about, you know, having, you know, not having to have a wallet to develop a film sensibility, to develop a, a literary sensibility. But, you know, with wine, maybe you do have to have a little bit more of a wallet, but you have to be able to, you have to work your way up and, and for people to become passionate about wine. I mean, you know how many millions of sideways wine parties there are, but not all, all of them are necessarily there to sniff and swirl and, you know, and, and, you know, conjure up these, you know, ridiculous, you know, descriptors and inscriptions of wine or whatever. They're also there because it's a wonderful social, you know, it, it, it's a social lubricant too, in a way. And, um, but, you know, for, trust me, I've met so many people, you know, who make Pinot Noir and I haven't met one who doesn't like me, <laughs> you, know? you know, I mean, not only have they, they can raise the price on their wines, there is that economic fact, but, you know, I, you know, this, this will be, you know, probably arrogant, but there's no question the movie put Pinot Noir on the map. I mean, Burgundy would say, no, we've always been there. Yeah, that's true. But they were struggling in the seventies and eighties. They really were now. I mean, you can't even find their wines. Well, Ammon Valley, I, I don't know where they were in the eighties and nineties with Pinot, but um, they were coming on. But I mean, after the movie, I mean, people, yes, went to the San Inez Valley and those wines are overrated for what they are, you know, to be honest with you, but they've gotten better. But, you know, everyone started saying, well, where else is there, Pino? Oh, gosh, Russian River, Carneros. Oh, my God, Willamette Valley, Oregon. I always wanted to go go there, you know, 85% Pinot Noir. Good grief. It's, a, it's only Pinot Noir. We need, that's, that's like the Holy Grail, you know. I mean, so, you know, they, you know, people have imaginations. They don't just stop here. So the fact that they have, they, I, I wrote about a journey, you know, and I made it real. I made my character as real as I could. He's not some phony baloney. He's not some wine critic. He's not whatever. He's just a real person struggling middle age, you know, at a crossroads, crossroads in his life. And I think a lot of people identify with that. And that if he can find here something that gives him some pleasure, and I don't just mean the alcohol, and I mean the actual you know, because I, I really do think wine imparts so much more than that. And so many people who drank wine just drank it because they wanted to get high or, you know, or whatever it was, you know, 
Um, but now, no, you know, think about it. There's more, there's a lot more happening in here. And, and these winemakers who are making it want you to discover something more. And you know what? That guy who wrote that book and they, that movie they made, they've got a character in there. That's exactly who he, he is. He's that guy, you know, he's, he's the guy who, you know, who actually believed that despite how broke he was, that, you know, he, he could follow his passion. Isn't that what it's about? I mean, not necessarily to make money, but to develop, you know, a sensibility of some kind. And, um, and I, I, I don't have any qualms. I, I, I wish people stopped saying, well, it was all going to happen anyway. And it's like they want to take credit. And of course, we'll never know rich but the truth of the matter is is pinot noir has not gone away you know i think just the fact that you and, and many others can now pronounce willamette valley correctly is, is a testament to the power of what <laughs> you did in pinot, pinot noir and we're, we're up here in the willamette valley as someone who's grown up here and lived here his whole life very excited that people can finally pronounce it right and yes, IPNC now has a is so popular. It has a lottery system in place to get tickets. So yeah, I would say that's it's doing well as well. Uh, I'm I'm curious um, as you've come to know Oregon wine a bit more uh, and Oregon Pinot Noir. Tell me about your impressions of the of the industry from your perspective. What what do you, what do you know about Oregon Oregon wine and, and what what uh, what excites you about it? Well. You know, because I'm coming out with, a, you know, wines from Chile and, and, and there's, in fact, I'm getting three single vineyard Pinots. I've already decided on a Sauvignon Blanc and a red blend and actually a rosé. But in our first portfolio, there there has to be a Pinot Noir. So the first ones they sent me, I frankly didn't like, you know, and I, and I was honest with them. And so they're sending me three or four single vineyard ones and I'm going to pick one. They're blending them or whatever. But, um, you know. You know, I wish, I guess in some ways, I know Pinot is is really, it is difficult. It's not, you know, they they drop a lot of fruit and, uh, you know, they don't get a lot of, you know, quantity in order to get the quality out of it. Um, so I have a lot of respect for them. And I, and I think that probably, especially going into kind of a recessionary time, that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be hard. But Pinot is still only, you know, we only really see it in Willamette Valley. And also, you know, with the million acres that were burned, 2020 could be a, a pretty tough year. And obviously, Sonoma and the San Inez Valley, Monterey, Chile, Chile has quite a bit of Pinot Noir, you know. Um, but, you know, for me, it's, um, and, and of course, New Zealand has, you know, about 8% planted in Pinot Noir, but you don't really see that much of it in the world because it really does like I'm talking like miles now it really does only grow in these kind of you know specific places but um you know I don't you know I I guess you know when I look at the Oregon wine business I think what I started to say was we bring or at least I do I bring price expectation you know, I bring wine expectation to price to bottle, whatever. So if you tell me a wine costs $20 and it's a Pinot Noir, you know, my expectations aren't super high. So if it really over delivers, then I'm excited. If you tell me it costs a hundred and it's Pinot Noir and they've done studies on this, then I'm like, you know, if I'm not, you know, floating on a cloud, then, you know, you know, I, I suppose if you're super rich or whatever. So I think Oregon to me is, is one of the greatest places for Pinot Noir for me. I mean, I know this is, you know, you might think I'm 
saying this playing ad hominem, um, you know, because you're in Oregon, whatever, and I get to be in New Zealand. I've heard there's some great ones there. We see very few. Uh, Chile is, is a relatively new wine region, and they do do a lot of other grapes, unlike Oregon. Oregon has devoted themselves to Pinot Noir. Think about it. Other than Burgundy, and even Burgundy is 50% Chardonnay. So you have devoted yourself to this one grape. But I think because your soils are so different, you have more people up there doing more sustainable and, you know, those kinds of things, which I think are giving us interesting flavor profiles. I, there's a woman up there. I, she has a winery. And she says, just letting, I forget her name. She's a great podcast. And I'll drink to that with her in Oregon. And she just lets weeds grow and other stuff. She thinks, I, I can't remember her name. I mean, fill it in for me. But um, what she's doing sounds so exciting, you know. And um, I, I honestly think right now that I, I think for, for the price that the best Pinot Noirs are in Oregon. I, I, I'm going to go on. I think Santa Inez Valley, because of sideways, they make some good Pinots, but they're overpriced for what they are without naming any names. Sonoma is way overpriced. It's ridiculous. And it's because the land is so expensive. So when we take the interesting iron rich soils of Oregon, we take that colder climate. And you also have one other thing kind of, you know, with climate change, even those two degrees you're going to get longer growing seasons, although you might get more moisture too. So, and I just want to throw that out. Um, it might be an advantage to you in some ways, but the truth of the matter is, is, um, is I think given the quality of the winemakers in Oregon, many of whom have migrated from other places because they want to be able to do what they can do and not have owners say to them, Hey, wait a second. I paid 350,000 for that acre. Why are you dropping fruit? <laughs> you know, I mean, he says, because I want to make the best wine on the planet. Uh, you know, look, I'm not going to try to put down Sonoma winemakers. I think it's a lot of it has been taken over by rich Silicon Valley types and let's face it. And, and the San Inez Valley does not have the same, doesn't have the great soils that Oregon does, in my opinion, in that colder climate. Um, I also like that, you know, I, I do like that kind of, that darker, more um, blackberry, that more, there's a little more of something geologic going on in those Oregon Pinots. I don't know, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, they, they um, and, and again, the Pinots, there's one region in Chile um, that I am going to mention, which is Casablanca Valley. So there's a lot of regions, but the the Pinots out of Casablanca Valley are incredibly stellar. It's not as big as Willamette Valley. But um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I'm just saying to me, I, I, I do, and I'm not saying this for your benefit, that one of the reasons I, you know, I wrote, um, you know, Sideways 2 or, or Vertical is it's called, but I wish it had been called Sideways 2, is I had gone up there to write an article about golf, if you want to know the truth. And um and I, and I fell in love with it. And then I started to say, I'm going to write, um, I think, you know, it's, it's a long story about vertical. I'm not going to bore you with it. But once I ideated this road trip, so it goes back to my road movies and whatever. Um, actually, this is kind of funny. There's a, a woman up there and I forget her name. She's a publicist, but she's married to a winemaker. And I said, uh, Meg, um, I'm thinking of, you know, writing, you know, Miles and Jack are going to come to Oregon, but I don't really know that much about, you know, Oregon Pinots. This is back in 08 or 09. I'm living in Santa Monica now in a different house and there's, I'm on the second floor. And she said, okay, I'll send you some wines, Oregonian wines. And this guy from UPS came up the stairs sweating with a box. And I said, thank you. 
And they said, no, wait a second. And he made 12 trips. She'd sent me 12 cases. Each case had a different, had 12 different wines in it. So 12 times 12 is what? I had 144 different, and almost, a lot of them were signed, you know, whatever. So obviously they were hoping maybe I was gonna, you know, put it in the novel. And I did. So you know what I did is I had an, a now ex-girlfriend um, and she had a lot of friends and, you know, we had a big party of about 60, 70 people. And they, and the only, I said, I'm bringing over 140 wines or whatever. And I want you to bring notebooks. And, 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 and the deal is, is I'm going to pour you for free all night. These wines are 30 up to 70 every bottle. There's not a bottle here under 30, but you need to take notes. Cause I want, you know, I want to hear what you think or whatever. And they did. Some took it more seriously than others or whatever. And there were about 60, 70 people there. And I learned a lot from here. You know, I, I like listening. I'm very collaborative in that way. And, um, and I think that party before I even, and I'd been up to Oregon before, but before I wrote the book, um, I think um, that those wines, you know, really, they, they really blew me away. I don't, frankly, I don't think there was a bad wine in there. I mean, there wasn't a bad wine in there, you know, and I, and I don't think that Oregon has done what some other places have done, which again, we'll, we won't name names here, um, have, I don't, has anyone gotten really big in Oregon, you know, like where they're producing a million bottles of Pinot Noir? I don't think so. I mean, it would be hard to do with Pinot, but I suppose you could do it. Um, but nobody's done that. You know, they've stayed artisanal, you know, they've stayed true to it. Um, I don't think all of them are necessarily making a living at it always. They're doing it. And again, so now I'm coming to, as my brain is waking up here, um, it's a little bit like art, isn't it? You know, you're doing it for the love of it and you hope you get the recognition. I suppose the recognition would be, you know, Parker or somebody or Alan Meadows or whatever gives you a 98 and suddenly now you can't find your wines and you can raise the price. But, um, you know, I guess if there was any, you know, negative downside. Um, you know, it's that I've seen a lot of people profiteer off of Pinot Noir, selling wines that aren't worth what they are without naming any names. And I can name a lot because they just happen to be, you know, super associated, you know, whatever. And, um, but for Oregon and the fact that they're planted 85% Pinot Noir, I mean, I, I liken winemakers to artists. They take the ingredients to me, which are the characters and the setting and whatever. They bring them into the, you know, into the winery, and you know, hopefully they don't do too many, much manipulation, and they let the vineyard, you know, give them that, and they're alchemizing that into something they don't really know what it is in a way. I mean, they they really are artists. I mean, sure, it's a an ephemeral product. It's an agricultural product. It isn't a book or a movie, but um, I, I have I have great respect for those winemakers and and I met a lot of them in Oregon and I love I love the process of winemaking I don't I don't ever want to but I love asking those questions I'm not interested in being at like a high end wine tasting with wine critics and you know all their adjectable you know bullshit whatever I'm more rather just have a guy take me into the vineyard and saying look what we're doing here in this row or something that that actually when I was in Italy when I was in Chile that really interests me the beauty you know that beauty but also understanding you know viticulture and and vinification I think Oregon's doing a lot of radical stuff I'm sure they're worried about you know climate change and and what it's going to do but um, I think it's I think it's there's no question it's 
certainly it's a region that is that is principally devoted to that one grape that I so love and you know extolled and you know rhapsodized about so lyrically I'd like to believe you know um, but they are they're 85 percent devoted to that I don't know how many people know that about Willamette Valley in Oregon certainly you all do but um, and I and I have to feel that sideways even though it wasn't you know, shot there, and unfortunately, vertical wasn't made or whatever. But that had to have got given launched a, a lot of adrenaline into, you know, into the Oregon wine world. You know, and and so makes me feel really great. You know, really happy. You know, I appreciate you talking about the, the sort of artistic part of things because that's something that I was thinking of earlier as you were talking about the sort of your reaction to sort of seeing your soul, as you put it up on screen, as, as Alexander Payne taking your soul, yeah. putting it up, putting it up on screen. We hear that a lot about making wine too. And I'm curious now that you're, you have wine coming out under your name, even if you're not in the, in the cellar making it. I'm curious how you feel about, how does that uh, compare to, to writing something? How does it, how does having a wine coming out under your name compare to, to writing a book? Well, you know, the person who brought me to Chile, um, he said somewhat sheepishly uh, over the phone, how would you feel about putting your name on a bottle of wine? And, um, you know, because he thought I, you know, I, I'm this uncompromising artist who wouldn't sell out, you know, of course, everybody sold out, you know, it was amazing. Um, and, and like I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't make millions off this. I sold sideways the novel. We haven't gotten even got into that part of it. I sold it for $5,000 and, and St. Martin's press, they didn't do any promotion, nothing. I, I mean, I made less, I mean, I made money when the film went into production because there's that money. So I thought, well, okay, maybe this is time to, you know, um, leverage something I created that others have leveraged into millions of dollars. I mean, just take, I don't know, Kathy Joseph's a fiddlehead. I mean, she was lucky to even get in the movie and there's like a 10 second conversation. You don't even see her bottle. And she went from 750 to two and a half million gross in one year. And I don't know where she is today, but I'm, I'm sure she's a multimillionaire, you know, and a 10 second scene. I mean, really a dialogue. But again, it's not so much about the money. Maybe, you know, I said, you know, I, I love Chilean wines and I know that because the land is so much cheaper down there that um, that they can produce high quality at a lower price point. And, and I would really, I, I, you know, for me, my philosophy is simply, I want the wine to be non-elitist. Um, I understand why wine costs a lot. Sometimes it is the land like Burgundy, which is fabled and there's only so much of it. I understand with Sonoma, it's just simply because the, the land is so expensive period when they turn it over. Um, in, in Chile, um, you know, it's, they can, they, they, their wines overperform for the price. So, you know, if I can come out with a wine that can uh, be enjoyed and be at a, a completely affordable price for, you know, a younger generation coming along who may be moving to craft beers or moving to whatever they're doing, um, you know, it's kind of fun to, you know, cause I've been an artist all my life. So this is, you know, it, I'm being a bit of a businessman more, you know, but because I'm involved in label design, I'm involved in marketing and other stuff, but I have a partner who does most of that. I don't just sit back and put my name on it. I am heavily involved in this. I've been to Chile twice. That's a long flight. I just went a year ago. I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil for a, a launch of one wine, but we're actually coming out with four now. We're, we're rebranding it, but it was huge success, the first launch. You know, so it's, you know, 
it's work. It, you know, it takes me away from my writing a little bit, you know, um, but if it, if it gives me a revenue stream that will take me off into the, you know, into the sunset um, and people love the wines and, and whatever, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say, you know, I'm not going to name celebrities who just slap their name on a label, but there are, there are those. And then they think they can sell it. You know, Colin McGregor puts his name on a whiskey. Who knows if he even drinks it, you know, whatever. Or I don't know, Cameron Diaz just put her name on a Pinot Grigio and, and she's happy it's sustainable and, you know, whatever, you know, I mean, I am a, I am somebody who does love wine. I am somebody who did write a book. You know, it would seem to make sense that, you know what I mean? I, I at least I'm eligible to put my name, you know, and, and if I can be passionate and I can be passionate about Chile, I love the country. I think that it has tremendous potential. They've already shown that, but they're, um, you know, they maybe don't have all the resources that, um, you know, uh, Willamette Valley has, or maybe, you know, because, but they, um, and they're growing a lot of different grapes, but they have a lot of different, really, it's topographically the most diverse country in the world, by far, if you know anything about Chile. I mean, you start in Santiago in the middle, you go north, it gets very desert-like, and there's vineyards up there, and you go south, it's much more lush, you go inland, it's almost like Africa. I mean, it's, it's topographically, it's an incredibly diverse country, and has so much potential. So I can be, you know, as I got passionate about Pinot with Miles and the San Inez Valley and going up there, or whatever, I can be passionate. If I can be passionate about something and you can, you know, and we put out a product that, you know, is, you know, is, you know, is, is good, you know, and, and it over delivers for the price. I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I'm selling out. I don't, I don't have any problem with that. And it's not like, you know, but I will admit there's a part of me that, you know, there's not, it's not like, um, you know, I write a novel and I sell, you know, I don't write necessarily best-selling novels, quote unquote. I mean, you know, Sideways has sold maybe a quarter of a million copies, but that's with no promotion. It should have sold probably two million copies, three million. So, you know, and people are reading less and less. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I feel, I, you know, like, um, you know, I, I, earned, I earned the right to do this. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm just jumping in and putting my name on a craft beer or something you know i'm not doing that you know so we've, we've talked a bit about during this during this chat about all the kind of current and future projects you have you have the, the musical you have the archivist coming out you're working on your working on your autobiography um is there anything else about any of those you want to talk about now or, or any other future projects you have either uh, you're working on now or things that you have on, on the horizon you know, it's, it's funny. I, I planted all these seeds. I used to only have one thing going in my life. There was La Prisma. That was it. But I didn't stop. I wasn't going to just wait and see if it got published. And then it was sideways. And that was it. And now I, I planted all these seeds. And, um, you know, and it seems like I'm lucky. I'm a very fortunate person. A lot of them have come up. So the wine, I didn't know what was going to happen with that. It was a real struggle with the, with the first winery. But um, but now that's really come together. Um, a guy called me out of the blue from New Zealand and said, hey, would you like to write, you know, a fourth book, a tetralogy? And I said, I'll think about it. And that's led into a wonderful conversation. And it just so happens, you know, theater shut down and they're COVID free. And we could put on the musical there. The musical is came out of the play. A friend of mine is a composer, um, brilliant. And um, he said, Rex, this should be a musical. And so three and a half years ago, I wrote the book, the lyrics. Since then, we've got 15 songs. Unfortunately, theater shut down, but um, we have almost the entire musical. And so 
you know, the archivist came about as my papers being taken at uh, Geisel Library at UCSD, my alma mater, and meeting uh, the woman who processed my papers, the Rex Pickett papers, and realizing this was another world. I'd like to get away from wine and go into, and, you know, and I had to find a story. And I'm really excited about that novel. It's a long novel. I mean, it's like 580 pages. It's big. And um, so I'm really excited to the reaction to that. That could be a series, you know, and, and, and probably, you know, my autobiography, I hope will be, because it's long, is something I really wanted to write, because I have really lived this this life um, on my terms, not always because I wanted to, but I've lived these, you know, life on my terms. Uh, you know, so, as you know, somebody once said to me, Rex, you must live a charmed life. And I said, um, well, you wouldn't want to live the life I've lived in order to live the ostensibly charmed life I'm currently living. The key word being ostensibly. And also the key phrase being, you wouldn't want to live the life I've lived in order to live the ostensibly charmed life I'm currently living, you know, but the autobiography, yeah, there, there's some score settling in there. You know, I want people, I, I will, you talk about burying my soul. I will, I'm burying it in there. Volume one is written. It's done. Now it's now on to volume two, volume three. Um, I have to go back and re reread volume one. And there's going to be some people probably going to be a lot of lawsuits. You know, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I lay it out there. I don't sugarcoat it. I mean, at all. Why would I? I mean, I didn't sugarcoat it in sideways. Um, but um, it's like I wake up every day with with so many things. Um, you know, if New Zealand happens, that that would take me there very soon. Not only, Rich, you don't know this. Not only would there be, in other words, in order to write a novel there, I have to re I have to go travel those islands for at least two or three months. So that's part of the deal. Same way I did in Chile. And the San Inez Valley was sideways. I was going up there, going up there. So the novel came out as a result of that. Um, vertical was a little bit different, but I'd have to go there. I know nothing about it. I'm not going to write a novel off of Wikipedia. But uh, they. But when, when the project was presented to them, they wanted to do a six-episode uh, TV thing with me hosting it, a la Anthony Bourdain, of that journey. And I thought, well... Yeah, but could we do that after I do the research? And they agreed and they want to. So I would also be going there to host a TV show. Then there's putting on the musical there, but we can only get so many people into the country. You know, I, I wake up every day, but it's, you know, it's great. It's like if, if one thing is kind of like sort of on hold, you know, I can go to this other thing. But the thing I'm most, you know, I'm, I'd be very excited to go there. I'm very excited, you know, about the archivist and I'd be, you know, um, I'd be very excited to write a Sideways for New Zealand. And I'd be very excited to see the musical. I've heard the music. I wrote the book. We should be on a stage right now, but you know everything shut down. And I mean, 100% shut down in March. And theater may be the last thing that comes back in the U.S. It, it, in fact, it will probably never come back to what it was ever. Never. Personally, that's what I think. Some disagree with me, but not not in New Zealand. I just love to see that musical, you know, come out because the play was such a, a wonderful experience because you have to realize, and again, I don't want your audience to take this wrong, but I was peripheralized when the movie came out. People pushed me aside. I was invited to some things. You know, I felt not, not an outcast, but, and not a pariah, but, you know, just sort of like not really respected to be quite frank with you. And, um, that ha I'm not the only one that happens to other novels. Bear in mind, I didn't do the screenplay, but it is such a personal piece, whatever. But with the play or the musical, you know, 
your name is above the title, you know, Rex Pickett sideways. So again, we talked about validation, Rich, a long time ago, you know, a long time ago, a long time ago in this long interview, um, that that's really validating. And when the play works, which it has not every version, but, you know, uh, the first, uh, the first three really worked, you know, it was in London too. And, you know, that was in the, to be at the La Jolla Playhouse, you know, 400 seat theater, eight performances a week, not three, 400 people instead of 50 sold out and extended twice. I mean, that's, that's electrifying. I mean, truly electrifying. And, and it's, and it's your name now It's Rex Pickett's sideways. And again, I don't want people to think I'm, you know, bitter. I don't want them to think I, you know, I'm an egotist or whatever, but it's amazing the people who took credit for this, who had little or nothing to do with it, you know, to be on, honest with you. And, and so the play, the books, you know, but the play, the musical kind of restores for me who the credit really should go to. I hate to say it. I created that world and I didn't just create a world. Like I took a few trips up there. Hey, I think I'll do a thing about two guys on a bachelor party. No, that that's my life. That's 10 years of my life going up there. Those places, everything I lived that. And I, and I suffered that character of miles Raymond. I suffered that character and I had the temerity, if, if you will, if you'll give me that to, to lay that bare on the page and then they laid it bare on the screen. I mean, I, there was resistance. I mean, I have ultimately, I have over 230 rejection letters on four sets of submissions for sideways, the novel, 230 rejection letters, you know? And I mean, it's, and I, I've gone, I've, a lot of things I'm not saying in here, but um, so the, I feel very fortunate given what's happening in the world right now to have all these, all these things. And, um, you know, whether it's the archivist, which takes me into a, a new place that celebrates a profession that, um, that, you know, uh, the woman who processed my papers made me really look into and see that they're working behind the scenes, preserving history as you are doing, you know, I have just tremendous respect in, in the face of this onslaught of content. I mean, I, somebody, I know this probably got wrong, but somebody said, I read the other day that every 48 hours, the internet pushes more content than all of the 20th century. Every 48 hours. What do you do as an archivist? I mean, there's just content just is coming at us from so many different places. You know, so archivists face a lot of, so to go into that world and maybe do other, you know, her, the main character is Emily Snow, 27 year old. She literally solves a murder. I mean, that she just goes there to finish up a project. And it gets into the literary world. It gets into the politics there or whatever. I'd love to see her go off to Florence or London for another, be a project. You know, they're kind of like a, the lone gunslinger. They come into town, they finish a project, but then they stumble upon, you know, so it's going back to La Prisma, which is, or even from Hollywood to Deadwood, mysteries. I love mysteries. So I'm still going back to that, you know, Raymond Chandler, The Long Goodbye, of course, my famous no favorite novel of all time. But um you know, I'm able to now bring that back in a different way, but with with a woman character and, uh, you know, she's not a detective, but in a way she becomes one. She's very assiduous in her work and what she does. So, you know, all these things, I, I wake up every day really pretty, feeling pretty excited about all the things. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed, you know, should I be working on this or working on that? But, um, 
you know, and, and also when you're a failure, you know, rejection is much harder than when you've been rejected and then you've had success, then, you know, you can, and people say stuff, it still hurts, of course, you know, if someone, you know, a critic said, oh, well, he didn't, Rex missed it here or whatever, but, you know, it's, it's I, I've been, I've been through that, I've run that gauntlet, I've run that, you know, ring with sideways, particularly, and then you win over 350 awards, admittedly, it's the movie, it's not the novel, but, uh, but it is you, um, it's, um, you know, it, it not, it, it not only restores your confidence in yourself and what you did, but it, um, it's, it, I guess, validating is the word I want to use, you know, and it, and it kind of inures me to criticism, not that I, you know, I still reach out and, and I still take it, but um, I, I feel liberated. I feel liberated by that success in some ways that I can, you know, I don't want people to think of me as a sellout because I'm coming out with a wine because I truly believe in these Chilean wines. It, it's a great place right now for wine, whatever. Um, and, and like I said, the musical, I, the reason I want to see it is because it really is more celebratory of the, of the women characters. They, they're so much bigger and, and it's really more about Miles and Maya. It's still the same story, but it's really more about the, the two of them. And, um, and the songs are so beautiful. Um, and, 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 and musicals take you to another dimension from the play. They, they, they're much more, it's more transporting. It, it, it really hits the heart and the soul in a way that even the movie did. And, and obviously the play did too, but a musical takes that to another level. You know, it sacrifices some things as a result. It's a, it is its own art form, you know, that I, you know, I've probably seen five musicals in my life, but my composer has seen about a thousand. So he knows it, you know, um, but I wrote the lyrics, you know, so I had to join ASCAP. So I started out writing poetry and put out two self-published poetry books, wrote avant-garde fiction, made two independent feature films, then, you know, wrote many screenplays in there, you know, options some that didn't, should have gotten made, didn't, then, you know, won the Oscar for the one short film, whatever, and then wrote novels and then Sideways was adapted and made whatever, then wrote an adaptation of the novel for theater, for live theatrical. And now, you know, I'm doing, you know, I hope I don't, you know, now the musical potentially going back, you know, it's like I've, I've really kind of, you know, you know, I've, this trajectory, you know, from there to there, but all at the end of the day, it's really about storytelling for me, telling a story. And, um, but if you're going to tell a story, I think you have to really, at least for me, I have to believe in the characters. I have to believe in the, um, in, in the, uh, in the subject matter, say in the case of sideways, you know, the wine is not any made up thing. I mean, I, that is just a genuine passion for Pinot Noir when I discovered it. And, um, you know, for me, I, I feel like maybe I'll end up just writing wine labels. I guess that will be, you know, or car manuals. I don't know. But, you know, I, I've been able to explore my voice across a whole range of mediums. And, um, you know, I just, I feel, I don't want people watching this to think, you know, I mean, I feel like I have, you know, more years of some great projects in me, but I, I feel like there's more projects than I probably have years left to explore. But, you know, I, I, I really did go to a very dark place in 99 when I wrote Sideways. And, um, I, you know, I was really left for dead. And I magically 
literally magically just through sheer perseverance or whatever came out the other side and and now i'm i'm kind of you know enjoying some of the you know you know pun alert fruits of that success but you know um and you know people want me to write things and 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 uh maybe come to another country to explore you know like i said i was in italy for five months writing an original screenplay didn't get made but that doesn't matter I still got to meet wonderful people. So this thing that I've done, it's been a lot of suffering and a lot of loneliness and a lot of living on the edge and being a destitute. A lot of people couldn't live that way. But on the other hand, I've lived my life on my terms. And, um, and that's, um, I consider that to be, you know, I consider that to be a success. You know, I don't really care about having like some 5,000 square foot home and three BMWs in the garage or whatever. And I don't have that, obviously, to people who know me. I don't care about that. I only care about one thing, and that's free time. Because in free time, I can make it happen. Because I have no problem getting getting in the chair and typing. I've got, you know, I can just start. In fact, actually, The Archivist is a very long novel, like I said. And I originally wrote it as a teleplay. And then I got a call from Blackstone Publishing. You know, we love your writing. We've done three audiobooks. Uh, but we're now in publishing. I said, well, yeah, I'd like to do. So I basically, the teleplay was an adaptation of a novel that I hadn't written, if you think of it that way. Now I got a chance to write it before I, so I wrote eight episodes of the teleplay. But when I start, sat down to write the novel, I wrote the first draft in 90 days. And it's, this is, you know, this is over 200,000 words. So, so it just pours out of me now. I don't, I'm not one of those, you know, guys who's like, ah, ah, writer's block. I don't have writer's block. I know where I'm going. I, I, I won't write unless I have an ending. Seriously, I, I won't write unless I have an ending. I won't write until I can hear the characters in my head. Um, but once I do, um, that, you know, people ask me about that. You know, to me, that is such a pure thing, writing for me. It is such a great joy. The worst part, and even to this day, and I don't want to go into recent stories, but is then taking it to the world. And, you know, see, there's some similarities there with winemakers. Take Ken Wright, great winemaker up there. I mean, he's making high-end stuff. You know, $80 Pinot, single vineyard, you know, whatever. I just, I just threw out his name, whatever. He's still got to go and some asshole critic might give him a 91. He's going, he probably wants to commit suicide. You know, you don't understand my wine. I'm trying to, you know, whatever, you know. And by the way, the name you sent me, I think that is exactly who it is, Mimi Castell, you know, who's doing such extraordinarily you know things in the vineyard i give her some you know and we need to get more women in the wine business they actually have more taste buds than us so they're actually you know better at that but um you know so even they are you know they're like taking something to the world that's that's such the hard thing to do the writing the making the wine must be yeah stressful but pleasurable for them they watch the grapes you know grow and they pick them in and it's exciting it there's a there's a you know uh, an exhilaration in that but then you got a bottle and oh, now there's these, you know, wine critics, you know, and same with books and movies. You now there's that guy, yeah, I don't know about this, you know, that, I, that part I hate. And the business side of it too, the business side of selling wine, I would, you know, that's, I wouldn't want to be, you know, I have other people involved in that part of it, you know, and being rejected. I guess that's what it is. It's just, you know, part of the art world is you have to, you have to risk rejection, Rich. That's it. And I, you know, I've risked it and I've taken it and I've taken it big time, many times, you know, and still do. But you know what? I do have 
you know, you're lucky if you set out on a path that I set on, which I didn't choose, it chose me. I, I could only be this, I couldn't be anything else, is, um, you know, if you come out of it with one legacy work, that's a successful career. One legacy work, it's a successful career. And I have that, I hope to have others. And there's been, you know, you know variations on it, of course, sideways the play and stuff. But, um, I, you know, if I, sitting in Claremont, this little, you know, cookie cutter, neighborhood built here, you know, uh, for military families, whatever. And I grew up there with a bunch of, you know, pot smoking surfers, you know, half of whom are probably dead now or whatever, that, that I would be here talking to you and talking about the things we're talking about. You know, I don't know what it was in me because where I come from, it's not like growing up with, you know, a family of intellectuals in Manhattan or I don't know, you know, that might've, I would have been exposed to incredible literature when I was nine years old. That didn't happen to me. I had to find it, you know? And like I said, I give a lot of credit to UCSD. I give a lot of credit to a couple of people there in particular, and a lot of credit to my buddy, Carl Jung in those 20 books, because that changed my life, that six months of reading him. And then from there, it's, um, you know, you know, you've got to, you know, you know, you've got to live with, you, you can't control what the world is. You know, you, it's not, you know, as I, I'm fond of saying, life is not a meritocracy. It just isn't. There are people who've made a lot of money as writers or filmmakers who, frankly, I don't think deserve it. And there's some who were really great and fell by the wayside because they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle the life. Others who maybe had posthumous fame, you know, whatever, winemakers who pour their heart and souls into stuff and and they're hardly getting by. And then they look at, I don't know, I'm just throwing Kendall Jackson or something. They're making millions selling swill. You know, I'm sure they'll hit me saying that, but you know, it's, um, they probably even own Oregonian wines, but in all fair, you know, life is not a meritocracy, you know, but what makes you happy for me, it's simply that, um, you know, that I have the free time to, you know, and people paying me not a lot, but, you know, to write what I want to write in an uncompromising way, um, that's all I ever could have, and I don't have to go and punch in and punch out of a job or whatever. Uh, I consider that to be a successful life. Well, that is fantastic, Rex, and, and I think we've covered a lot today, and I know we sat down for an hour, and that was like many hours ago, so I really appreciate your time and your stories, your candor, and your thoughts about your, your life and your work and about wine, and I'm going to go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you, Rich, for having me. And, um, you know, I just great love of Oregon and, and just the fact that, you know, you have this archives and what you're doing is, you know, and, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. It's uh, I think you're, you know, it's, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's really, you know, paying respect to history, in your case, wine history. And it should be it should be re documented, recorded and preserved for future generations to explore if they if they choose to do so. You know, so, you know, my hat's off to you and what you're doing up there. So. Anyway, thank you so much. We, we appreciate that. And we're All right, Rich. Excited to add this to the collection. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, 
Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archives students who have assisted on our oral history interviews. <laughs>